Women's Fight Back, front cover, issue 29, autumn 2023, £3, a socialist feminist magazine by Workers' Liberty. Inside, abortion on demand, the far right's culture war, Berlin's hospital movement, the new section 28, Gina Masa Amini one year on, queer life in the Soviet Union, liberation and monstrosity, trans pride, and much, much more. Page one. In this issue. Since the last edition of Women's Fight Back, Carla Foster was sentenced to over two years in prison for having an abortion past the legal term limit. Bethany Cox is also facing a potential jail term. Abortion is a crucial battleground in the culture war engulfing our politics. In the US, religious reactionaries fought for decades to overturn Roe versus Wade. In Latin America, feminist movements have won advances for abortion rights. Nowhere is this issue uncontested. Intersecting it are debates about bodily autonomy, class, religion. This edition covers a wide range of topics, from the uprising in Iran to the history of queer life in the USSR, to the politics of Barbie. But we've devoted the largest portion to abortion and reproductive rights, reproductive justice. Workers' Liberty is campaigning for the full decriminalisation of abortion. We hope that this issue inspires you to get involved. Contents. Notes from the Berlin Hospital Movement, an interview with Stella Meridino. Two. Abortion, Our Demands, Danielle Mace, 5. Bodies Under Siege, Kelly Rogers, 7. Choose Life, Have an Abortion, The Story of Justina Wardzinska, Lizzie Brooks, 11. The Fight Against, Section 219A, Jana Hobb, 12. Lesson from the Women's Liberation Movement, Danielle Mace, 13. Gina Masaamini, One Year On, Kelly Rogers, 15. Only Yes Means Yes, Tyrone Falls, 17. Cast, Class and Rape in India, Jill Mountford, 18. Queer Life in the Soviet Union, Michael Baker, 19. Larissa Reisner, A Bolshevik and Revolutionary Life, Ellie Robinson, 2022. Burmese Women and the Great Unrest, Jill Mountford, 24. Poetry, Nadia Drews, 26. Liberation and Monstrosity, Liliana Pavia, 26. Being a Woman of Colour Around the World, Loretta Marie Pereira, 29. Barbie, a Review, Ruth Cashman, 31. Trans and Radical Pride, Wilson Gibbons and Alex Hulme, 33. The New Section 28, Jenny Wren, 35. Editor Kelly Rogers, cover photo by Feminist Collages, Feminist Collages London. Women's Fight Back is a socialist feminist publication produced by Workers' Liberty, which stands for Trans, Inclusive, Sex Positive, Class Struggle Feminism. We organise in our workplaces, trade unions, communities and in the Labour Party for socialist feminist politics. If you would like to organise with us or contribute to Women's Fight Back, please write to us at Women's Fight Back at workersliberty.org. Subscribe to Women's Fight Back. We are making Women's Fight Back quarterly. We have slowly been building up our capacity to produce the magazine more frequently, but we need your support.
subscribe to Women's Fight Back and get four issues for £12, including postage and packaging. www.workersliberty.org forward slash WF Page 2. Work and the Unions Notes from Berlin What we can learn from the hospital movement In September 2021, thousands of health workers launched an indefinite strike at Charit and Vivance, two of Berlin's large municipal hospitals. So began the Krakenhaus Biwagung, Berlin's hospital movement. After a month, they won. A year later, nurses in the UK underwent their own industrial awakening as the Royal College of Nursing balloted for nationwide strike action over pay. The differences between the disputes could not have been more stark as a series of obstacles, some erected by anti-union laws, others by their own union, combined to defeat the UK nurses despite overwhelming public support. Women's Fight Back interviewed Stella Meridino, an emergency department nurse working in advanced hospitals, who went on to play a leading role in the movement. Roots of the dispute. The roots of the hospital movement will be familiar to British readers. Right-wing reforms to the healthcare system and challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. In the early 2000s, Germany introduced a system already in use in the US and UK, in which hospitals receive a set fee for a procedure or course of treatment regardless of how much it actually costs to deliver. This system is known as Diagnosis-Related Groups, or DRGs. Unsurprisingly, hospital managements have sought to exploit the system. If they can drive down the cost of treatment, they can pocket the difference. To right-wing politicians and lazy journalists, this can be chalked up as, quote, efficiency, close quote. Anyone who works in healthcare will know there is a recipe for poor quality care in particular, DRGs have created an incentive to drastically cut the number of nursing jobs. Simultaneously, many hospitals have outsourced many of their non-medical roles in an attempt to drive down wages. When the pandemic hit in 2020, the German healthcare system was in much better shape than the NHS, but things were still very bad for those on the ground. Quote, everyone was at the end of their strength, end quote, says Meridino. Towards the end of 2020, organisers from Verdi, the public sector union, began to campaign around better staff-to-patient ratios and working conditions. Meridino was quickly recruited. Quote, I was on fire from the first moment because I knew what it meant for our patients. Short staffing kills people. End quote. She immediately got to work mobilising her colleagues. Quote, it only took two weeks to get the whole emergency department organised, end quote, she says, quote, which was pretty crazy, but shows you just how bad the conditions were, end quote. Overcoming divides. The Berlin hospital movement and the UK nurses strike share a common backdrop, but that is where the similarities end. In the UK, the dispute was led by the Royal College of Nursing, which is strictly limited to nursing staff and only recently admitted healthcare assistants. It's one of a patchwork of, brackets, sometimes competing, unions in the health sector. Verdi, on the other hand, represent workers across the public sector, including all grades of hospital workers. Activists immediately sought to build alliances with waste disposal cleaning and other workers, whose jobs it has been outsourced in an attempt to reduce costs. 
an NHS-wide strike could have been possible in the UK if Unison, the biggest health union representing non-medical staff, had managed to win their strike ballot. As it happens, they lost. A story for another article, perhaps. And spent the subsequent months instructing their members, nurses included, to cross picket lines. Quote, After I organised my emergency department, I started to help out with different hospitals in different units to help others get organised within the union, end quote, says Marandino. Whereas traditional trade unions focus on recruitment as a first step, in this case, quote, you didn't need to be a union member to get involved in this fight for better working conditions. I think this is quite a big thing because no one felt pressured to get into the union, even if they did join in the end, end quote. In the UK, the RCN leadership pursued a sectional and apolitical strategy. It stayed out of politics, even going so far as to order members not to bring anti-Tory placards to the picket lines in an attempt to maintain a respectable image. While in talks with the government, the RCN openly declared its support for a separate pay scale, pay scale for the nurses, which would allow its members to negotiate separate pay, deal, pay deals while leaving lower paid NHS workers on the on the old contracts. The hospital movement, on the other hand, sought to overcome divides in the workplace and actively sought to exploit the backdrop of the 2021 federal election. Quote, I spoke to the press a lot, end quote, says Marindino. Quote, and we invited politicians to the emergency department to show them how bad conditions were. It was very interesting how politicians talked to people just prior to elections. Everything will get better when we're in power, blah, 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 end quote. Ultimately, she adds, quote, they needed to back us because if they didn't, it would endanger their election prospects, end quote. For many nurses, the hospital movement was a way into a wider political world, quote, as a union, you always have a political standing, end quote, she says, quote, and you should use that to stay on the good side. We're definitely on the left and we're very proud of it. We have many connections with queer organisations, feminists, homeless projects, anti-racist and anti-fascist movements and so on. We keep each other informed about demonstrations. Our fight is not just within the health system, but against all injustice and, indis- and discrimination, end quote. Demanding. Rather than being initiated and controlled by trade union bureaucracy, the Berlin strikes are based on organising in the workplace with months of painstaking work and an attempt to organise meetings in every unit of the hospitals. Demands were formulated at lowest possible level rather than being distilled by supposed experts at Verdi's headquarters. Eventually they came up with four demands, better nurse-patient ratios, a clear means for enforcing these ratios, better conditions for those in training and a pay rise for outsourced workers. As the mood of the struggle built, organisers put on rallies and engaged in other demonstrations of collective strength. It all culminated in the handing in of what amounted to an ultimatum signed by more than 8,000 health workers, either reach a settlement within 100 days or face an all-out indefinite strike. When by September 2021 no deal was forthcoming, the strikes went ahead and the struggle went from being hard work to being all-consuming. Quote, I don't know how I survived it, really, end quote, says Merendino. Quote, you always had your head in the negotiations or in talks with politicians or with the press. You tried to have some sort of private life. But if I'm honest, 
My private life wasn't a priority because there was so much at stake. End quote. Worker experts. The engine of the hospital movement was its democracy. Workers took control of the strike, with delegates elected from every unit in hospitals taking a direct part in decision-making and in the negotiations. As Meridino explains, this was a major shift for Verdi. Quote, in negotiations, our union usually works with the lead negotiator. There are usually just a few people in the room, but we didn't want just anyone negotiating our nurse-patient ratio because union negotiators don't work in those departments or units. We are the experts on our units. End quote. The union proxy was blown along by the intensity of the dispute. Quote, because we organised so many people into the union in such a short period of time, they were forced to do it in our way. End quote, Rodino says. Quote, we had a system of delegates. To each unit had two to four delegates and every decision that was made during negotiations was being run past the delegates. Delegates would have time to discuss with their teams also, end quote. They had a negotiating team of about 20, including Meridino, who took the orders from a mass meeting of delegates in a nearby room throughout the negotiations. The high level of agency for activists served to keep spirits high, even as exhaustion set in, quote. The whole length of it was brutal, end quote, Meridino says. Quote, you would sit there until four or five o'clock in the morning, but we were there with co-workers who wanted the same thing. You'd make great friends. In the end, all those efforts and all those sleepless nights did something for us. End quote. In any healthcare strike, the issue of whether and how to provide cover, or derogations in union jargon, is always a heated debate. In the end... Both the RCN and the UK and Verdi in Berlin sent nurses to work during the strike to cover life-preserving services. But again, the manner in which this was organised could not have been more different. The RCN's derogations were decided by centrally appointed strike committees, which could be overruled, and in many cases were overruled, by unelected bureaucrats in union in the union HQ. In the hospital strikes, workers in hospital units decided themselves on how many people should work. In the emergency department, they chose the same number as the most understaffed shift in the previous six weeks. But how did all this bottom-up democracy sit with a massive institutional machine like Verdi? Quote, I think the union weren't very happy about it at first, end quote, Rodino says. Quote, they didn't expect to have 2,000 people getting organised in just a few months, but it happened. Those 2,000 people were very motivated and they wanted change, so Verdi were forced into giving us a voice. In the end, they could see the benefit. Before, we'd have people sitting there who would have even worked in the hospital or in whatever workplace, depending on what strike it was. Now they have a network of worker experts they can rely on. It's lasting in Berlin and it's been adopted in other cities, end quote. Winning and spreading. The standard way to run and lose an industrial dispute in the UK at the moment is to call short, disconnected spasms of strike action over a marathon length of period of time in the hope that the employer will somehow become tired and give up. Not in Berlin. The hospital movement walked out for an indefinite period. Crucial to their ability to keep going was decent strike pay from Verdi. 
80% pay for the nurses and after some crowdfunding, more than that for outsourced workers. By the beginning of October, after just one month of all-out strike, they had been offered a raft of concessions and ended the dispute. They didn't get everything. They won improved nurse-to-pay ratios, though not ones as good as they had initially demanded, and a means of enforcing them. Nurses are now paid extra for working on understaffed shifts and get paid time off as compensation. Outsourced workers will get a pay rise. They will still not be on the same contracts as public sector workers and are still outsourced. Quote, the next step will be to take outsource to take on outsourcing, end quote, Meridino says. In the aftermath of the hospital movement strikes, other health workers have begun to organise across Germany using the same demands. A year later, an 11-week Verdi strike in North Rhine, Westphalia, which includes the cities of Aschen, Bonn, Dusseldorf, Essen, Cologne and Munster, ended with a similar set of concessions from hospital managers. Quote, we can't change the whole union in Germany in just one year or two, end quote, Meridino says. Quote, but it is happening gradually and it is a really good change, end quote. Give us what we want. In the UK, the nurses' strikes were the backbone of the largest wave of strike action so far this century. They garnered a small increase in pay as a result of their action. But the majority were disappointed as it didn't come close to what they had demanded. So what lessons are there to learn? The RCN dispute was tightly controlled by the union bureaucracy. Unelected officials ordered members around, determined the strategy of the dispute and handpicked the strike committees. Later, the minimal power that the strike committees had was taken away from them. Page 5. The leadership of the union ran a respectable policy, neutral campaign consisting of short strikes. Its supposedly clever expert negotiators caved and recommended a terrible deal. Eventually, the dispute collapsed out of alienation and fatigue. The situation had looked promising. RCM members turned over their leadership in their internal consultation and rejected the government's offer. But trust and confidence in the dispute crumbled. The rebellion was lost. In Berlin, nurses won, and they did so by running a democratic, worker-led campaign that was the opposite of the model deployed by many traditional unions. Trust was maintained throughout, especially during the crucial period of negotiations because the workers were at the helm every step of the way. The rising militancy of health workers presents a huge opportunity, not just for the left, but for the cause of feminism. This is a sector dominated by women. Nurses and care workers have historically been reluctant to strike, susceptible to the mythology of vocation, and stigmatised when they take action. Across the world, millions of healthcare workers are coming to understand the reality of work they do and the leverage they have. Quote, there is one option, end quote, Meridino says, quote, and that is to give us what we want, end quote. Workers' Liberty has a number of industrial fractions, including our health fraction, which we use to organise our activity in trade unions. We believe that being organised and discussing ideas and strategies collectively puts us in the best stead to push our unions towards democratic, worker-led action, which will win. Reproductive justice. Abortion. Our demands. Danielle Mace. In June this year, Carla Foster was sentenced to two years in prison 
for having an abortion after the legal term limit of 24 weeks. The case highlighted just how limited and fragile our abortion rights are. She was sentenced under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. This law is still the foundation of abortion law in Britain. It criminalises all abortions and carries the maximum penalty of life imprisonment. The 1967 Abortion Act legalised abortion under certain conditions with an authorised provider. But as it didn't repeal the 1861 Act, abortion remains illegal unless certain conditions are met. An abortion must secure the approval of two doctors who must agree that continuing the rule of the pregnancy would endanger the mental or physical health of the woman or pregnant person and the termination must take place before the legal term limit of 24 weeks, except in the case of risk to the mother's life or severe disability. Carla Foster won her appeal, has had her sentence reduced, note not overturned, and has been released from prison. But only a few weeks later, another woman was charged. 22-year-old Bethany Cox faces trial in January next year. She is the fourth woman to be prosecuted for allegedly carrying out an illegal abortion in eight months. Both the British Pregnancy Advisory Service and the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists say police investigations following later term miscarriages and stillbirths are still on the rise. In 2021, a 15-year-old girl who had an unexplained early stillbirth was subject to a year-long criminal investigation that involved having her phone and laptop searched. In 2022, a woman was kept in prison in a prison cell for 36 hours after a stillbirth due to suspicions she had had an abortion after the 24-week limit. Demands. Not one more woman should face criminal investigation for having an abortion, and to that end, we must demand the full decriminalisation of abortion now. But decriminalisation will not be enough on its own. We need to remove all barriers to abortion access. That means... The abolition of term limits. Even with decriminalisation, term limits will mean that women like Carla Foster would still be forced into riskier, medically unsupervised methods. We need access to safe and legal abortion as early as possible and as late as necessary. Abortion on demand. We must abolish the two-doctor rule and the requirement to prove that continuing with the pregnancy would involve greater risk to our mental or physical health. Simply not wanting to be pregnant should be reason enough. These constraints put pressure on women and pregnant people to question their reasons, as well as enabling anti-abortion doctors to undermine and obstruct access to abortions. Not just in law, but in practice too. We also need to win abortion on demand in practice. Although abortion is now decriminalised in Northern Ireland, it is still not available to most women due to a lack of services. In the rest of the UK, there's chronic underfunding, underprovision, and under-resourcing of abortion services. Access to abortion is a postcode lottery, where in some areas, women are travelling hundreds of miles, waiting weeks to be seen. Nearly three quarters of abortions are carried out by private providers funded by the NHS. 
according to the 2022 report by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists Abortion Task Force, the quality of abortion provision is poorer, less safe and less consistent across the UK due to historic variation in funding and the exclusion of NHS trusts from many contracts. Abortion care also fails to meet NICE, National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, guidelines, which require abortion procedures to be available within one week of assessment. NHS underfunding and under-resourcing are also limiting the choice of abortion methods available. The two methods are surgical abortion and medical abortion. Surgical abortions take place in a clinic or hospital, under sedation or anaesthetic, and require a couple of hours stay. Medical abortions involve taking two pills to induce abortion at home, which takes a few days. Medical abortions are now by far the most common method for 12 weeks, before 12 weeks. They are favoured by NHS and private providers because they are much cheaper and easier to provide. Medical abortion will be many women and pregnant people's first choice because they can stay home and pills can now be ordered online via telemedicine consultation. But it won't be everyone's preference. Medical abortions mean days of heavy, very heavy bleeding, intense cramps and fever. This isn't something that can be easily hidden from others in the home, such as parents or an abusive partner. It's also not safe for those with a variety of medical histories. Women in need or prefer a surgical abortion are forced to wait weeks for an appointment or travel far from home to the nearest suitable clinic. There is very little provision through NHS trusts for abortions above 14 weeks. At later gestations, only a few NHS trusts in England provide abortions, and in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, there is no provision at all. We need to fight for access to a full and free choice of procedure, available locally for all and as close to home as possible. Abortion services should be fully integrated into the NHS sexual and reproductive health services. Trained nurses and midwives should be allowed to carry out abortions and prescribe abortion medication. At present, although nurses can carry out vacuum aspiration procedures for patients that have had a miscarriage, only doctors can perform the same procedure in a surgical abortion. The fight for a huge expansion of abortion and contraception services means campaigning to rebuild the NHS. This includes demanding a huge increase in funding, paid for by taxing the rich, abolishing financial charges for migrants and relaunching NHS workers' fight for a real pay rise so we can begin to resolve the recruitment crisis. The morning after pills should be free for all, available in all pharmacies, and we must abolish the mandatory counselling by pharmacists that is both shaming and unnecessary. We need improved sex and relationships education in schools, and we must defend SRE from attacks from the religious right. We must defend the Gillick competency when it is attacked by transphobes and link the struggle for trans rights with the struggle for reproductive freedom. Those who want to restrict trans children and young people's rights to consent to gender-affirming healthcare, such as puberty blockers, also threaten under-16s access to abortion and contraception.
Reproductive freedom is also about being able to decide to have a child if and when we choose to do so. Winning reproductive freedom means fighting the wider inequalities that stand in the way of our right to choose, such as housing, pay, benefits, including the two-child benefit cap, childcare, migrants' rights, disability rights and social care. Workers' liberty activists are currently discussing how we can shape the fight to defend and extend our reproductive freedom, bringing our campaigning into the unions and pushing for the labour movement to join the fight. Get involved by emailing womensfightback at workersliberty.org. Page 7. The Rise of the Far Right. Bodies Under Siege by Kelly Rogers. Bodies Under Siege, How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global by Sean Norris Ferso, 2023. In the last year, four women in the UK have been prosecuted for carrying out illegal abortions. This is especially shocking when you consider that in the 160 years prior, there were only three. There has been a corresponding rise in criminal investigations, which are not only invasive and traumatic for those involved, but also suggests that further prosecutions are coming down the line. But why now? In her book, Bodies Under Siege, Sean Norris sets out the links between the rising far right and the wave of anti-abortion initiatives taking hold across Europe and the United States. Far right. Norris's starting point is a place that women and women's bodies have in fascist ideology. Central to this ideology is a belief in a, quote, natural order, end quote, predicated on patriarchal authority and white supremacy. The far right consistently links abortion to conspiracy they call the, quote, great replacement, end quote, whereby abortion, alongside migration from the global south, is leading to the collapse of white majority nations. The Great Replacement is, so the theory goes, being driven by the so-called, quote, cultural Marxist elites, end quote. A term that is rooted in anti-Semitism, but has become a catch-all to include Jewish people, feminists, the left, Black Lives Matter activists, the EU and the US Democrats, amongst other things. At the heart of the Great Replacement theory is the call to take control of women's reproduction Meanwhile, people of colour must be removed, sterilised or exterminated in a genocidal race war. Then came QAnon, another conspiracy theory that emerged in 2017 on on the message boards of 4chan. According to the followers of the theory, a left-leaning elite of, yes, you got it, quote, cultural Marxists, end quote, runs a cabal of cannibalistic child molesters. Abortion, they say, is used for ritual satanic sacrifice. The aim being to de-Christianise the West and execute the Great Replacement. Despite being utterly unhinged, these ideas have been successfully mainstreamed, especially in the US, where the Republican Party has been, to a significant degree, captured by the far right. Some polls estimate as many as one in five Americans believe in some element of the QAnon conspiracy. This isn't the first satanic panic to take hold in the US. After the passing of Roe v. Wade in 1973, 
a popular movement emerged in which men, claiming to be former Satanists, stated the world had, was being run by a satanic cult. This movement continued into the 1980s in a direct response to improvements in women's social and economic status and played a significant role in strengthening the new evangelical right. Trump. QAnon moved online and into the real world when on January the 6th, 2021, supporters of Donald Trump launched an attempted coup. Many believed that Trump would lead a far-right revolution, what they were calling, quote, Day X, end quote. Storming the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., they sought to keep Trump in power. The mob brought together QAnon followers, far-right extremist groups and prominent anti-abortion activists. Among them was John Brockhoft, Hoeft, Hoeft, an anti-abortionist who was jailed for firebombing a Planned Parenthood clinic in Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1985. In a newsletter published from prison, he described the murder of doctors providing abortion as, quote, justifiable homicide, end quote. The mob eventually went home on Trump's instruction. That night, 147 Republicans voted to support the claim that the presidential election had been invalid. Amongst them were congressmen and women that had publicly promoted the QAnon conspiracy theory. In the months that followed, Republicans continued their vicious campaign against civil liberties, including the right to safe legal abortion. Trumpism had relied on hyper-online misogynistic communities since its beginning. Indeed, the 2016 election was epitomised by scandals about, quote, pussy-grabbing, end quote, and the like, and became a flashpoint for, quote, incels, end quote, and men's rights activists. After his election, Trump appointed anti-abortion judges to the Supreme Court, and the four and the four years of his presidency saw a cataclysmic wave of anti-abortion measures. These included the introduction of heartbeat, bill, heartbeat bills, limiting abortion to the first six weeks, the forced closure of abortion clinics, the implementation of trap laws, and the introduction of state laws requiring funerals for aborted fetuses. Although he lost in 2020, by then, Trumpism has successfully turbocharged the cultural and instigated a hardline anti-abortion judiciary. The road was clear and in June 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. 21 states now have implemented a near total ban on abortion or severely restricted access to it. The clinics in states that continue to provide abortions are overwhelmed. Europe in 2013, Religious Right Network Agenda Europe held its inaugural conference in London, in which approximately 20 North American and European anti-abortionists set themselves the task of devising, quote, new strategies for European anti-abortion movements, end quote. The network's manifesto, carrying the revealing title, quote, Restoring the Natural Order, end quote has been described by Ellen Rivera. Ellen Rivera, in her study of the influence of Agenda Europe in Spain, as, quote, part theological tract, part anti-communist pamphlet, 
part far-right, conspiracy theory, and part totalitarian roadmap, end quote. It sets out a blueprint of incremental changes to abortion rights, with the ultimate goal of a total ban. These changes include bans on terminations in cases of fetal defect, narrowing term limits, the requirement of minors to secure parental consent, mandatory counselling and calling off periods, and introducing vexatious regulations that make it more difficult for abortion clinics to operate. In Bodies Under Siege, Norris draws concrete links between Agenda Europe and a number of other anti-abortion, anti-LGBT organisations, the World Congress of Families, Citizen, Citizen Go, Hatith, Hats, Hasta Or in Spain, Ordo Loris in Poland, and the Alliance Defending Freedom in the UK among them. She also demonstrates the influence that Agenda Europe and its sister and front organisations have had on mainstream politics. Hungary and Poland are two prime examples, but the influence of these organisations on political parties and politicians extends to Spain, France, Greece, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, Slovakia and elsewhere. Viktor Orban welcomed the World Congress of Families WCF to Hungary when Budapest hosted its annual conference in 2017. Orban gave the keynote speech where he called on Hungarians to have more children and attacked the EU for its liberal ideology, which is described as, quote, an insult to families, end quote. Since then, he's spoken repeatedly in public about Hungary's, quote, demographic winter, end quote, and the great replacement catapulting a fringe conspiracy theory into mainstream politics. The WCF describes Hungary as, quote, an advocate for the natural family in Europe, end quote, and has celebrated the redrafted Hungarian constitution, which grants an unborn fetus rights and defines marriage as between a man and a woman. Orban has subsequently introduced measures that allow hospitals to refuse to perform abortions, instead forcing women to undergo mandatory counselling and, three day, a three, and a three-day calling off period, a measure taken directly out of the Agenda Europe playbook. Poland has gone even further. Ordo Loris has played a prominent role in legal battles against sex education and so-called, quote, LGBT ideology. End quote, in Poland. But its main success has been its campaign to limit access to abortion, prohibiting abortions in cases of fetal abnormality. Poland has seen huge waves of feminist protests in recent years. In 2016, when the Law and Justice Party first attempted to introduce the restriction supported by Ordo Loris, the protests held off the reform. In 2018, the government tried again. Polish women once again fought back. Finally, in 2020, the government succeeded. Sustained attacks on Poland's judiciary meant that new restrictions could be imposed free from democratic oversight. 
After the introduction of the near-total ban, the number of legal abortions dropped 90% compared to the year earlier. But Aldo Loris hasn't stopped there. Last year, they published guidance encouraging the prosecution of those who use, supply or advertise abortion pills sent by post, the primary means by which people access abortion. They also carried out a, quote, audit, end quote, of hospitals, determining whether they were providing abortions to refugees from Ukraine and have campaigned for hospitals to take legal steps to verify that refugees are telling the truth when reporting that they had been raped. Rape is one of only two remaining situations in which people in Poland can access abortion. Alliance Defending Freedom was set up in the US in 1994. Its focus is fighting court battles and it claims to have won 80% of all the cases that it has fought. Amongst its victories, one can find state bans on late-term abortions and dismantling buffer zones around abortion clinics. These zones protect service users from harassment by anti-abortion protesters. The ADF played an important role in paving the way to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Britain. Alliance Defending Freedom's European wing, ADF International, is seeking to replicate the successes in the UK. The main focus at present is buffer zones. They want to keep them out of British law and dismantle them where they exist, arguing that anti-abortionists have a right to free speech. A number of Tory MPs have taken up this argument in Parliament. MPs that have proven links with the ADF, the World Congress of Families and Citizen Go. Amongst them is Nadine Dorries, who in 2011 submitted a bill to Parliament seeking to ban abortion providers from offering counselling to women with unwanted pregnancies. Brexit accelerated a culture war that's produced fertile ground for far-right groups like ADF International, Patriotic Alternative and Turning Point UK. Brexit emboldened those with hateful and bigoted views, leading to an increase in racist, xenophobic and anti-LGBT hate crimes. And for many, the new common sense is that white conservative males, aka the white, quote, the white working class, end quote, or, quote, ordinary people, end quote, depending on who you're talking to, are being silenced by a, quote, woke mob, end quote. Mark Collette, UK neo-Nazi, who founded the fascist group Patriotic Alternative, shared a cartoon on Telegram depicting white women queuing at an abortion clinic and a line of hijab-wearing women outside a maternity ward. The image was captioned, quote, this is white genocide, end quote. It's one of many like it circulating on Telegram, Reddit and Gab. Jim Dalson, who founded the Anti-Abortion UK Life League and co-founded the fascist anti-Muslim group Britain First, is also very prominent in the UK. He spends much of his time producing online content, videos that weave in anti-abortion speeches with far-right conspiracy theories and pro-Putin messages. Unfortunately, these organisations have been gaining some momentum. Patriotic Alternative have been organising protests across the UK, outside hotels 
housing asylum seekers and refugees. He has also coordinated countryside hikes and local litter picking initiatives to try and garner support. Patriotic Alternative recently split with some members having to form a new group, Homeland. Red Flare, an organisation that investigates the far right, described Homeland as, quote, a distillation of the most dangerous elements into something harder, more serious and better organised, end quote. Patriotic Alternative, alongside Turning Point UK, whose sister organisation, Turning Point USA, organised the buses that took the extremist militias to Washington DC on the 6th of January 2021, have also been protesting drag events. In recent years, trans, queer and gender non-conforming people have been a central target of the far-right hate. Indeed, anti-trans bigotry has united the broader far-right in a way that few other issues have managed. This should come as no surprise. Gender is, in the view of the far-right, innate and immutable and traditional gender roles determine one's place in the so-called natural order. The far-right has formed an unexpected alliance with women anti-trans activists, some of whom originally herald from the left and claim to be feminists. Unlikely partners, the two camps share common ground on issues such as protecting single-sex spaces and women's sports. Individuals and organisations share platforms with fascists, not all, it should be said, objectionable though they are, Women's Place UK have denounced those working with the far right. In doing so, these so-called, quote, gender critical, end quote, feminists have found common cause with a right that wants to criminalise trans people, stigmatise gender non-conformity and subordinate women. And it doesn't stop there. In June this year, Kathleen Stock, a prominent, quote, gender critical, end quote, feminist, published an article titled, quote, The Perils of Reproductive Extremism, end quote. In it, she argued for a continued criminalisation of abortion, mere days after Carla Foster was sent to prison, and for the father's right to influence the decision of whether someone should get an abortion or not. Not only have, quote, gender critical, end quote, feminists fueled the rights war on trans people, in Stock's case, she's coming after our reproductive rights too. In this context, it's perhaps unsurprising that we appear to be losing the culture war. The Conservatives' historically an institutional barrier to the rise of the extreme right has now itself turned into the far-right party of sorts. It's no coincidence that the Tories are now pursuing a barbaric scheme to deport migrants to Rwanda. Nor is it a coincidence that they are now preparing a new, quote, section 28, end quote, which will force school workers to, quote, out, end quote, trans students. Migrants, migrants' rights, trans rights and reproductive rights are all firmly in the crosshairs of the right. It is essential that we are united in our struggle against oppression in all its forms. Wake up call. At this stage, it's not entirely clear why we're seeing such a spike in criminal investigations against people having abortions in the UK. But evidently, something is going on. In Bodies Under Siege, Sean Norris draws a clear line between fascist ideology, the role of conspiracy theories in popularising fascist thought, 
the web of religious right organisations working to roll back our civil liberties. And finally, the mainstream politicians that have long had connections with these far-right projects. But while Norris is right to sound the alarm about the influence of these groups, it would be wrong to say that Trump and the overturning of Roe versus Wade came about purely by design. These things are messy and complicated. Trumpism is rooted at least as much in the long-standing evangelical right as it is in the newfangled conspiracy theories and far-right message boards. Trump was, ultimately, a horrible, perfect storm, and it is far from a foregone conclusion that the anti-abortion lobby will have the same level of success in the UK. But what Norris has helped clarify is that the anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, anti-woman religious right is a force to be reckoned with. It's organised, it's well-funded, and at the moment, it's riding a wave of rising far-right sentiment across Europe. And, as always, women's bodies are a terrain that the right seeks to control and which we must defend. As such, Bodies Under Siege is a much-needed wake-up call. Our policy, abortion as early as possible, as late as necessary. In April this year, members of Workers' Liberty convened for our annual democratic conference. We passed this policy, launching a programme of activity campaigning for the decriminalisation of abortion, the abolition of term limits and expansion of reproductive rights. Policy barriers to safe abortion include criminalisation, mandatory waiting times, the requirement that approval must be given by other people or institutions, financial charges, e.g. for some migrants, insufficient levels of provision and limits on when, during pregnancy, an abortion can take place. Such barriers can lead to critical delays in accessing treatment and increase risks of unsafe abortion, stigmatisation and health complications. Some barriers are used by anti-choice individuals and organisations to push women past legal term limits to prevent legal abortion. We offer the removal of all of these barriers and the decriminalisation of abortion, which would lead to it being regulated in the same way as other healthcare procedures. Our support for abortion rights is based on bodily autonomy. Nobody should be forced to stay pregnant against their wishes. Workers' Liberty is a democratic member-led organisation. Get in touch to learn more about joining Workers' Liberty and what we do. Office at workersliberty.org Page 11. Poland. Choose life. Have an abortion. Lizzie Brooks. Since January 2021, Poland's had a near-total ban on abortion. Before this... Poland already had some of the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe, which only allowed for abortions in a small number of scenarios. If the pregnant person had been raped, or the pregnancy resulted from incest, if their life was in danger, or in cases of severe fetal abnormality. The ruling by the Constitutional Tribunal declared the last of these no longer valid. 
in 2020, there were approximately 1,000 legal abortions. Following the introduction of the new law, that number fell by 90%. Justina. Justina Wodzinska was arrested in November 2021 for posting a woman abortion pills to take her home. Aiding an abortion carries a potential sentence of up to three years in prison. She attended her final day of court on 14th of March this year, dressed in a magenta suit and a gold necklace displaying the words, quote, myth, miso, end quote, referring to the two drugs used for medical abortions, mifepristone and misoprostol. She was supported by Kinga Jelinska and Natalia Broniarsizk, with whom she had co-founded the activist group Abortion Dream Team, ADT. They were wearing matching jackets emblazoned with a slogan, quote, choose life, have an abortion, end quote. Protesters gathered outside the court, waving placards that read, quote, Jacques Justina, end quote, quote, I am Justina, end quote. Justina never denied mailing the pill. Instead, her defence was that doing so was not a crime but an act of compassion. It was the state that was guilty. The woman she had sought to help had become dangerously ill while pregnant and had been admitted to hospital. When she expressed her concerns to her doctor, she was dismissed. The woman discharged herself and int intending to terminate her pregnancy. She was in an abusive relationship with a controlling partner who did not want her to end the pregnancy. Here, Justina got involved. She sent a small supply of mifepristone and misoprostol. The next day, she heard the woman's partner had discovered the pills and called the police. The child had been widely criticised. The judge denied human rights groups access to the courtroom, but granted entry to a representative from extreme anti-abortion group, Ordo Loris, and allowed them to participate in the prosecution to represent the supposed interests of the foetus. The public prosecutor also filed motions against Justina, accusing her of, quote, indecent behaviour, end quote, outside of the courtroom. ADT made the most of the trial to raise awareness of the existence of abortion pills. They would regularly hold up boxes of mifepristone during press conferences. The verdict was read out just after 3pm on the 14th of March. The abortion dream team were now wearing matching blazers adorned with silver sequins. Justina was found guilty of both charges and sentenced to eight months community service at 30 hours per week. The judge gave a heavier sentence than the one that had the public prosecutor had requested. The woman that Justine had sought to help ended up inducing a miscarriage using an unsafe method, leading to hospitalisation and a serious infection. She eventually made a full recovery. Dorota Agnieszka Isabella Justina was convicted in March. It didn't take long for another woman to pay the price for Poland's restrictive laws. In May, Dorota Lelik died in hospital. Five months pregnant, her waters broke. She was initially told that her pregnancy could be sustained and that her health was not in danger. The staff told her to lie with her legs up in the air so that the, quote, waters might come back, end quote. She developed sepsis and her health deteriorated quickly. 
Dorota was eventually given an abortion, but too late. She died from septic shock and multiple organ failure that same day. Abortion is still legal in cases where the pregnant person's life is at risk, but doctors are under pressure to delay performing the procedure. If a doctor is seen to perform an abortion unnecessarily, they will face three years in prison. Marta Lempart from the All Poland Women's Strike said, quote, All pregnant women are in danger the moment they refer to a Polish hospital. We're afraid of all doctors because we don't know which ones will act to prevent their patient's death. End quote. Situations like this are common. In January 2022, Agnieszka T died when a doctor refused her abortion. She was pregnant with twins and one of the fetus's heartbeats had stopped. According to the information submitted to the European Parliament, five other women died that year in similar circumstances. In September 2021, Isabella Subjaw died after being denied an abortion when her waters broke in the 22nd week of her pregnancy. The doctors refused to perform an abortion until the fetus heartbeat had completely stopped, despite the fact that it was known that it was very unlikely to survive. Her sister testified at the European Parliament and said, quote, She knew she was being tortured, forced to wait for the fetus to, to die. Abortion remains a decisive issue in Poland. Recent polls suggest that more than two-thirds of the population support the liberalisation of abortion law. There is a lot of support for secularisation too, among young people especially. Many have been alienated by the Catholic Church's hardline approach to the abortion question, cover-ups of sexual abuse and its ongoing involvement in Polish politics, including its support of authoritarianism. More powerful still, a recent poll by Amnesty International has found that 47% of people living in Poland said they would aid someone seeking an abortion in a similar situation to Justina's. Among young people, that figure rose to 66%. Despite the best efforts of the Polish state to intimidate, the public trial of Justina has fired people up garnered more support for abortion and assured that more people know where and how to access it safely. Page 12. Germany. The fight against section 219A. Jana Hoss. In Germany, abortion is covered by section 218 of the criminal code. It stands as an, quote, offence against life, end quote alongside murder and manslaughter, is only exempt if it is carried out during the first 12 weeks of pregnancy and if the woman has received counselling from an authorised advisor and has waited three days before the procedure. Until July 2022, a significant legal obstacle to abortion was Section 219A of the Criminal Code. This law prohibited publicly offering, announcing or advertising abortions. In practice, this meant that doctors were prevented by law from informing patients that we were providing abortions or what kind of procedures they were able to offer in any other form other than verbally and in person. Both the prohibition of abortion as such and the prohibition of, quote, advertisement for abortion, end quote, are based on laws implemented in 1933, in the early stages of Nazi rule. The practical result of Section 219A was that people seeking medical professionals qualified to conduct abortions, for example through Google search, 
I was unable to find factual information. Instead, they would usually find lists of doctors providing abortion exclusively through websites of anti-abortionists who were looking to shame and dox the doctors. Those seeking abortion would be subjected to a string of anti-abortion propaganda before they could even find a doctor qualified to conduct the procedure. In 2017, Dr Christina Hanel, a GP from Hess, was found to have violated paragraph 219A by including information on abortion on her website. She was sentenced to €6,000 fine. There was a huge public backlash and all political parties, except the governing CDU, CSU and the far-right AFD, pledged to repeal the law. At the time, parties back in abortion reform held a majority of the Bundestag seats and the 2017 federal elections changed the changed situation overnight. The CDU and SPD formed a coalition and in and amongst the horse trading, the SPD dropped its pledge to get rid of Section 219A. Dr Hanel appealed the court decision and was sentenced again in 2018 and following another appeal again in 2019. The case sparked outrage amongst the general population and Dr Hanel received widespread support, including petitions with hundreds of thousands of signatories and nationwide protests. As a result, the government decided on changes to Section 219A, easing rather than ending the law. These changes were widely deemed inadequate and medical professionals continue to be investigated and sentenced for providing information. Doctors were still sentenced under the new 219A for including information about various possible procedures. After sustained pressure, however, in 2022, the new government finally abolished paragraph 219A. Dr Hanau and other medical practitioners sentenced under the old law have been exonerated. Follow us on Instagram. We have a new Instagram account. Follow us for social feminist news and commentary and stay up to date with our political work. Women's dot fight back. In defence of, quote, pregnant people, end quote. In the wake of the imprisonment of Carla Foster, a motion was put to Sheffield Healy Labour Party for the decriminalisation of abortion. The motion included the sentence, quote, It is vital that Labour collectively support progressive legislation change including decriminalisation and reform to allow women and pregnant people to control their own bodies, end quote. Recognising that all pregnant people, including trans men and non-binary people, have a right to reproductive choice. An amendment was put to delete the term, quote, pregnant people, end quote, on the grounds it could be seen as, quote, offensive, end quote. The individual, of course, caveated this by saying they were not transphobic. They appealed for unity around the, quote, most important issue, end quote, of abortion rights. Fortunately, the amendment was defeated and the motion was passed. Shamefully, however, a minority voted against the motion as a whole once it was clear it would include the term. This illustrates the lie that the issue for transphobes is the, quote, clash of women's rights and trans rights, end quote. Where there was an opportunity to make a stand on women's rights and back trans rights, 
They chose their prejudice, the very definition of trans-exclusive. A feminism that does not fight proactively for trans rights will leave women behind and become a defence campaign for those of the most power in our movement. Pass our motion for full decriminalisation of abortion in your Labour or Trade Union branch. Bitly slash motion abortion decrim. Page 13. History. Lessons from the movement. Danielle Mace. The campaigns in the 1970s and 1980s, which defeated a series of attacks on the 1967 Abortion Act after a model that we can learn from. In 1975, the National Abortion Campaign, NAC, was set up to campaign against the White Bill, the first in a series of private members' bills in the 1970s and 80s, which sought to reduce term limits. The NAC was made up of activists from the Women's Liberation Movement, the Socialist Left and the Labour Movement, and it had two aims, to defend the Abortion Act and win real reproductive freedom. The NEC was clear that abortion was a class issue. They knew that to win, they needed to build a mass movement that was based in the organised working class. The same year, the NAC held a trade union conference on abortion. NAC activists argued in their workplaces and in their union meetings that abortion rights were something that trade unions should fight for. They were operating in a labour movement that had considerably more conservative ideas about gender roles, family and abortion than today. Many unions were actively anti-abortion. There were many men who saw it as a private personal matter and, quote, not their issue, end quote. But persistent work by rank and file activists meant that those ideas started to change. The 1975 Trade Union Congress voted for free abortion on request. Then, in 1979, the TUC organised a 60,000 strong demonstration in defence of abortion rights. Quite remarkable when you think that today's TUC hasn't even organised a demonstration on pay in the midst of the biggest strike wave in decades. This was the first time that the union movement in the UK organised a demonstration on women's issues. But it didn't happen by chance. Branch after branch, followed by a number of national union conferences, had called for it to happen. There was a clear difference between the TUC's purely defensive slogan, keep it safe, keep it legal, and the NAC's more radical, bodily autonomy focused, Free abortion on demand for a woman's right to choose. Activists in the NAC understood the importance of building the broadest possible campaign, but also continued to continuing to raise more radical demands and build support for them in the movement. The NAC organised in the Labour Party too, and in 1975 and 1977 conference, voted for free abortion on demand in the NHS. Some Labour MPs ignored the conference decision. Not much has changed there. And voted for greater restrictions on abortion in Parliament. 
NAC activists pushed for votes on abortion in Parliament to no longer be taken as a free vote for MPs, arguing it should be voted on along class lines and not on the basis of individual conscience. This was defeated with major unions voting against it. In 1976, protests had occupied Westminster Cathedral and let off stink bombs in the House of Commons in opposition to the Benyon Bill, which sought to reduce the legal term limit from 24 to 20 weeks. In 1987, 20 years after the passing of the Abortion Act, the Autumn Bill was submitted seeking to reduce the legal term limit, this time from 24 weeks to 18. Once again, the NAC mobilised, creating the Fight Autumn Bill campaign. FAB had local groups in almost every town and city and coordinated another TUC-sponsored national demonstration. In both cases, they successfully fended off the bills. In 2003, the NAC merged with the Abortion Law Reform Association, ALRA, to form Abortion Rights UK. Now our rights are again under attack. As we mobilise to defend ourselves, we should remember that, to some extent, we've been here before and won. And we should remember the lessons. Mass working class mobilisation will be crucial in the battle ahead. Page 15. Iran. Gina Massa Amini, one year on. Kelly Rogers. September marks one year on since the murder of Gina Massa Amini, a young Iranian Kurdish woman who was killed in detention following her arrest for allegedly violating Iran's compulsory hijab law. Her murder sparked the most significant protests against the Iranian regime since the 1980s, and the strength of the uprising prompted the Iranian regime to take the notorious morality police off the streets. Crackdown. It has been confirmed that more than 20,000 people have been arrested and hundreds killed in the subsequent crackdown, with the real number expected to be much higher. Sentences have been extremely harsh. At the time of writing, Iran Human Rights reports 464 executions so far in 2023, a sharp increase on the previous years as the regime attempts to instill fear in political dissidents. Protests have been taken through Iran's revolutionary courts in trials blighted by gross miscarriages of justice, including confessions being extracted under torture. Many individuals remain in detention, charged with offences carrying the death penalty. Women political prisoners report being raped by interrogators, attacked by fellow prisoners and being denied medical treatment. Many have been moved to prisons outside of the capital city. It is believed that the regime may be looking to close down Evin prison in Tehran and then claim that no claim that Iran 
no longer detains political prisoners. The Iranian regime is one of the worst in the world for freedom of the press. And since the beginning of the uprising, dozens of journalists have been detained. Nilufar Hamidi and Elaha Mohammed were the first two reporters to be arrested in September 2022. They were charged with, quote, conspiracy and rebellion against national security, end quote, and, quote, anti-state propaganda, end quote. Charges once again carrying a possible death penalty. Their trials took place in the Tehran Revolutionary Court in July behind closed doors and they were both denied access to legal representation. Other journalists report being beaten in custody, receiving death threats, being followed, receiving threats that their close family members will be raped or killed. At the time of writing, 26 journalists are detained in Iranian prisons. Thousands of schoolgirls have been hospitalised following reports of mass poisonings. The first case came from the city of Qom in November at the height of the wave of street protests. Ali Portabata Bey, who reported on the Qom poisonings, is one of the journalists that remains in detention. The poisonings are widely believed to be a punishment for the women and girl-led uprising committed either by the government or by far-right groups in Iran. Despite the brutal crackdown, a lasting legacy of the protests has been continued defiance from Iranian women and girls, especially when it comes to wearing the hijab. Images and footage of women removing their headscarves feature regularly on social media, as well as on the streets of Tehran, and it's estimated that 10% of Iranian women do not cover their hair. At the time of the writing, the anniversary of Gina Massa Amini is drawing closer and the regime is preemptively arresting large numbers of women's rights activists in an attempt to stall a new wave of protests. Sepater Golian Sepater Golian is a prominent 20-year-old workers' rights activist and a political prisoner in Iran. She was jailed in 2018 for supporting the workers' union of Haftabar sugarcane workers' strike. She was originally arrested along with more than a dozen other activists, union organisers and workers. They reported being beaten, whipped and threatened with sexual assault whilst being held. Most were released after a short period, but Sepeta was only let go after a full month in detention. Her freedom was short-lived. Iranian state television aired footage which seems to show Sepater confessing to taking part in a Western-backed campaign to overthrow the government. She encountered these accusations on social media, declaring that she had been beaten and forced to make a false confession. She was in prison for a further four years. On 15th of March, she was released again, and in an incredibly courageous act of resistance, she immediately staged a powerful one-woman protest outside the prison gates. Hair uncovered, 
carrying a bunch of flowers, smiling. She was recorded shouting, quote, Kamini, Ali Kamini, Iran's so-called supreme leader. The tyrant will drag you into the ground, end quote, and demanding the release of, of other political prisoners. Sebader was arrested that same day and now faces a further two years in prison. In July, she was removed from court during a public session of her trial because she refused to wear a, quote, chaddle, end quote, a full body cloak that reveals only the face. Her trial has been suspended. Resistance. The protests rumble on in Iran in fits and bursts. The strength of the uprising last year initially forced authorities to capitulate to the pressure of the protesters, at least in practice. For 10 months, the morality police stopped patrolling the streets. This year has seen a wave of strikes. Inflation in Iran has been running at approximately 50% for several years now. Widespread anti-regime sentiment and a collapsing economy prompted workers from energy, steel, petrochemical and other industries to strike. Workers in more than 80 companies joined the action, striking against poor working conditions, job insecurity, low wages and rising living costs. The hijab remains the symbol of the uprising, the pinnacle of decades of oppression under a clerical fascist regime. But the protests have always been about more than just reforming the compulsory hijab law. The Iranian people are demanding the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. An opinion survey of 158,000 Iranians conducted in late December 2022 showed that 81% rejected the Islamic State. Of these, 40% believe it should be replaced by a democratic republic and 22% by a constitutional monarchy. In February, a number of leftists, feminists and student organisations and worker unions joined together to issue a statement against the regime. Among their demands was a call for the immediate release of all political prisoners and abolition of the death penalty, for a free press and freedom of assembly, for free trade unions, for full equality for women and the abolition of the law that discriminates against women and LGBT plus people, for a secular state and to end to discrimination based on religion or ethnicity for an immediate increase in wages and improvement in working conditions and the expropriation of wealth in order to fund education and other public services. This statement shows a potential for a new democratic society that can be built if the Iranian people succeed in overthrowing the Islamic Republic. We stand with them every step of the way. Follow the Solidarity with Iranian Workers Movement Committee www.swiw.org The aims of the committee are to mobilise union and labour groups in support of the uprising and workers' protests in Iran and in opposition 
to the human rights violations and executions. The committee is chaired by John McDonnell MP and consists of Iranian women's rights activists and delegates from trade unions and Iranian and Kurdish groups. Workers' Liberty also sends a delegate. Pass our motion in your Labour trade union branch, calling for the release of Sebader Golian and all political prisoners in Iran. bit.ly forward slash free sepider hyphen motion page 17 spain only yes means yes tyrone force new sexual consent legislation came into effect in spain in october 2022 quote la ley de garantia integral de la libertad sexual end quote stating that sexual consent must be explicit and cannot be assumed to be given. Previously, victims of sexual abuse, harassment and violence had to prove violence, threat of violence or coercion or demonstrate that they had resisted the perpetrator. Under this new law, popularly known as the, quote, only yes means yes, end quote law, quote, La ley del solo CSC. End quote. Various lesser crimes have been recategorized as sexual assault. A range of behaviour that was previously not criminalised will also now be recognised as such. This includes use of digital violence, e.g., non consensually sharing sexual images of the person use of drug and alcohol to facilitate sexual assault and street harassment, i.e. provocative comments, whistling or gestures. The impetus for the legislation came from two high-profile rape cases in Spain in 2016 and 2020 and feminist mobilisations in response to them. In 2016, Five men who raped an 18-year-old woman in Pap Ploma during a popular bull-running festival were acquitted. The case, popularly referred to as, quote, the wolf pack, end quote, and the subsequent court decision sparked outrage across Spain. In particular, protesters were furious that the courts had found that video Footage showing the victim unmoving and with her eyes closed proved that there was consent. One of the men accused was a member of the Civil Guard and another a member of the Spanish Army. In 2019, after widespread mass demonstrations, the decision was reversed. The five men were charged with rape and sentenced to 15 years in prison. A year later, in Catalonia, a 14-year-old girl was gang-raped by a group of men. Because the girl was intoxicated and did not, indeed was not in a state to, fight back, the courts ruled that the men were only guilty of the lesser crime of sexual abuse.
the courts ruled categorically that it was not rape. In 2021, the number of rape cases increased by 34% compared to the previous year. The Interior Ministry estimates that in 2022, around 2,870 rapes took place, an increase of 53% compared to 2019. This amounts to just under eight women raped every day, and the actual number is likely, is very likely higher. Close to one in 10 women over the age of 16 have suffered sexual assault by, a part, by either a partner or an ex-partner over the course of their lives. In September 2019, mass demonstrations took place after 19 women were killed by current or former partners over that summer. According to a study carried out by four Spanish public universities, in 80% of sexual assault cases, the victim knows the perpetrator and 60% occur in the victim's home. Clumsy laws or right-wing judges. The new law has faced criticism, however. Besides recategorising a range of behaviour as sexual assault, it also reduced the minimum and maximum jail sentences for those crimes. As a result, many prisoners have been able to reduce their sentences on appeal. The government, a coalition between Social Democrats, PSOE, and left-wing Unidos Podemos, argue that the loophole has only been interpreted in such a way because Spain's judiciary is largely controlled by the right. How much this is due to judicial conservatism, as opposed to carelessness on the part of the coalition government, is unclear. One suspects is a combination of both. The coalition government is divided on how to resolve the issue. Unidos Podemos, UP, argue that the law as it exists does not require amendments, whereas the PSOE argue that further, quote, technical adjustments, end quote, are required. Some in the party have even gone so far as to say they will recruit support from the centre-right party, Partido Popular, if need be. By April this year, 104 offenders have been released and a further 978 had their sentences reduced, according to government data. While there is a case to be made for focusing less on prison and criminalisation to tackle gender-based violence, this would be an extremely clumsy way of going about it. A clear step forward. Behind, beyond enshrining the need for explicit consent, the law also mandates sexual education at all stages of the education system and investment in public 24-hour crisis centres. Whilst these are both positive developments, the details of both and the level of financial backing for them is unclear. Spain has recently made progress in other areas of gender equality, e.g. narrowing the gender pay gap and has passed some other progressive legislation allowing anyone over the age of 16 
to change their legally registered gender, easing restrictions for young people accessing abortion and introducing paid menstrual leave. In spite of this, much of what makes people vulnerable to sexual and domestic violence, low pay, precarious immigration status and rising rents and house prices persist or are getting worse. In the next couple of years, we will see how this law is enforced in the real world. All things considered, it is a significant step forward, having the state recognise that a range of behaviour is sexual assault, even if it does not involve violence, the threat of violence or resistance on the part of the victim is significant. The law provides support for those fighting sexual violence, workplace sexual harassment and domestic violence. In particular, the promise of an expanded network of crisis support centres should be pushed to ensure that they are well-funded, democratically controlled, integrated into the wider public health system and easily accessible even to those living in a rural or suburban areas. Likewise, the mandate for expanded sex education should be pushed to be LGBT inclusive as well as including discussions on consent and pornography. It remains to be seen what the lasting concrete results of this legislation will be. Ultimately, it will depend on the Spanish feminist movement and the Spanish left. Page 18, India. Caste, class and rape. Jill Mountford. In May this year, two women were stripped naked and dragged through the streets in Impal, the capital of Manipur state, before being gang raped by a mob of men. The backdrop to this incident is the ongoing ethnic violence between the Miti people, who are the majority in Manipur, and the Kukizo tribe, a minority. So far, over 130 people have died in the conflict, and more than 35,000 have been displaced from their homes. It was Miti men who raped two Kuki women. Rape is the fourth most common crime against women in India, the weapon of choice for some men. Women and girls from Adivasi, indigenous Indians and Dalit communities, once known as the untouchables, are almost twice as likely to be the victims of rape and violence. According to Dr. Suraj Yegde, author of Caste Matters 2019, quote, the Dalit female is a victim of the cultures, structures and institutions of oppression, both externally and internally. This manifests in perpetual violence against Dalit women, end quote. The National Crime Records Bureau's latest data shows there was a 45% increase in reported rapes of Dalit women between 2015 and 2021. Official statistics record that four Dalit women and girls are raped every day in India. Their real numbers are thought to be much higher. Research carried out by Dalit-led women's groups Swabi Himan Society says that 10 Dalit women 
were raped every day in India in 2021. Rape is a weapon used against Dalit women and girls to keep the Dalit community in its place. And there are, of course, patriarchal structures and attitudes within the Dalit community itself. The rape of Dalit women and girls will often be, quote, settled, end quote, outside of the judicial system as perpetrators apply economic and social pressures on victims and their families. According to Deepa Narayan, author of Chup, Breaking the Silence of India's Women, 2018, the oppression of Indian women, quote, starts innocuously. It occurs in private life, with families, with girls being locked up in their own homes. This everyday violence is a product of a culture that bestows all power on men and that doesn't even want women to exist. End quote. Kidnapping and abduction is the most common crime against women in India, followed by domestic violence from a husband and his relatives. Also, shockingly in common are, quote, dowry deaths, unquote. 6,975 women were killed in India in 2022 because their dowry was regarded as insufficient by the husband and his family. This despite the fact that dowries have been illegal in India for more than 60 years. Incidences of rape, murder and sexual violence regularly spark mass protests. The International Dalit Solidarity Network points out that, quote, Dalit women activists are increasingly standing up for their rights. Numerous campaign groups, organised protest marches, document and publicise atrocities and offer their support to Dalit women. Such activities are not without risk as a response from dominant castes against Dalits fighting for their human rights can be brutal, end quote. For many Dalit feminist activists, frustration is common. Manisha Mashal from the Swabhiman Society says, quote, Forget getting justice. So many cases of violence against us are not even acknowledged. It makes my blood boil to see how we still have to fight for these basic rights. End quote. Deepa Narayan's book, on the other hand, as a call to women in their own class. In her words, the middle and upper classes to stir themselves into action and break their silence on sexual violence and rape. Quote, we need to talk about ourselves, end quote, she writes. Quote, and not just them, those poor uneducated women out there, end quote. But large-scale rapid change will only come about when women in fields and factories are stirred into action when their voices are raised and their oppressors forced to listen. Further reading, Chup, Breaking the Silence About India's Women by Deepa Narayan, 2018. Caste Matters by Soraj Yende, 2019. Page 19. History. Queer Life in the Soviet Union. Michael Baker. In 1934, J. 
Joseph Stalin received a letter from a Scottish communist called Harry White. White was a journalist working for the USSR's English language paper in Moscow. He was also a gay man whose boyfriend had recently gone missing. His letter opened with a question whose answer would shape the future of the Soviet gay community. Quote, Can a homosexual be considered a worthy member of the Communist Party? End quote. White's decision to move to the Soviet Union in 1932 had partly been an attempt to escape Scotland's anti-sodomy laws. The world's first socialist state had removed all homophobic laws, allowing gay people to live and love freely. He moved to Moscow, taking a job as a journalist at the Moscow Daily News. After a year or so, he had ingratiated himself with the local queer community and took an active part in the city's blossoming gay culture. He went on a string of dates with young men with a young man called Ivan. Then one morning in early 1934, Ivan failed to show up at the time they'd agreed to meet. After a couple of weeks, White checked with Ivan's sister who had heard nothing from him either. Through his press connections, he got access to the text of the new law recriminalising sodomy. This was passed in March 1934. The change had not been publicly announced. White's letter to Stalin was not a personal plea for the leader to do him a favour. It was a rigorous justification for the existence of homosexuality, arguing that it was a natural state of being for some men, and there was no reason for socialists to consider it a crime. White cited the Great Soviet Encyclopedia, which declared homosexuality an, quote, incurable condition, end quote, and shamed Western capitalist states for punishing homosexuals. He referred to conversations with two different psychiatrists, both of whom agreed that as his sexuality was, quote, incurable, end quote, he required no treatment and deserved no punishment. He outlined the reasoning behind homophobic oppression under capitalism, which he saw as rooted in the need to always produce a, quote, reserve army of labour, end quote, through a strictly policed nuclear family. He even quoted from Engels' letters, in which Engels commented on contemporary gay scandals amongst English and German aristocrats. White pointed out that one of the very founders of Marxism drew strict distinctions between the deplorable practices of the bourgeoisie who happened to be gay and the seemingly harmless cross-class practice of men having sex with other men. White received no response to his letter. The article in the Great Soviet Encyclopedia was soon updated, describing homosexuality as, quote, shameful and criminal, end quote, and, quote, revealing the decay of the ruling classes, end quote. Maxim Gorky wrote an editorial for Pravda, with an infamous promise 
quote, eradicate all homosexuals and fascism will vanish, end quote. White was not, quote, eradicated, end quote. He returned to live in Scotland in 1936. After the Soviet Union's collapse in the 1990s, researchers discovered his letter in the newly opened Soviet state archives. Across the first page is a handwritten note, quote, archive this, idiot and degenerate, Joseph Stalin, end quote. From free love to, quote, flesh kiss, end quote. The letter marks the most significant change in the history of gay oppression in the Soviet Union. Homosexuality was not a major issue within the early Bolshevik party, but arguments around it had been discussed. Most notably, Alexandra Kollontai argued for the decriminalisation on the basis of, quote, free love, end quote. After the revolution, the rewriting of the legal code removed the anti-sodomy law, but there is little evidence of any internal discussion on this decision. Regardless, this began a period of freedom for homosexual men and women that was impressively ahead of its time. The Soviet Union's legalisation of abortion in the same period was similarly progressive. Recriminalisation likely came as a result of pressure from the top of the OGPU secret police, later known as the NKVD, then eventually the KGB. Head of the OGPU, Genrik Yagoda, wrote to Stalin in September 1933, warning that groups of gay men were a dangerous weak point for Nazi, Nazi espionage, ignoring the incredibly vicious persecution of both homosexuals and transsexuals in Nazi Germany. Yagoda encouraged Stalin to reintroduce the Tsarist sodomy law Stalin did so just six months later. While, quote, de-Stalinization, end quote, under Nikita Khrushchev, led to several laws being repealed. Article 121, criminalising sex between men, was deliberately kept. The law used the somewhat archaic Russian word, Mazhalostov, quote, man laying, end quote. There are documented cases of lesbians escaping conviction in Soviet courts by arguing that they could not be guilty, guilty of man laying if there were, by definition, no men involved. Most particularly, gay men weren't so lucky. By one estimate, over 38,000 men were sentenced under Article 121 during the USSR's existence. Legal persecution and complete state control of all media meant that queer life was defined by secrecy and private networks. As in other countries, gay men largely found people to sleep with by cruising indications that gained the underground nickname Pleshki. Well-known Pleshki included the fountains in Moscow 
between the Bolshoi Theatre and the Statue of Karl Marx and St Petersburg's Anishov Bridge at the top of Nevsky Prospect. The latter had learned, earned itself the nickname the Bridge of 18 Testicles. Eight on the horse statues that adorned each corner, eight on the men riding them, and two on the policemen who stood on round the clock guard to watch out for any untoward behaviour. Wherever and whenever they are used, cruising spots have to fulfil a double role. An innocent meeting place or tourist attraction to the general public, but also a location to scout out other queer people and establish a more intimate connection for those in the know. This inevitably carries risk, as evidenced by much higher rate of arrests, stodomy or public indecency around famous Prashki in large cities. With no form of publicly visible representation and almost no record of their own history, queer Soviet people were left to build records of histories on their own. Popular gays of the past included the composer Tchaikovsky and communist French novelist André Gide, as well as more debatably queer figures like William Shakespeare. Harry White mentions all three in his letter to Stalin. Contemporary celebrities were constantly identified as potential gays. Stage singer Vadim Kozin, for example, was one of the early Soviet Union's biggest celebrities, a diva famous for singing love songs and refusing to perform at the drop of a hat. A hugely popular figure, Kozin was able to flaunt his homosexuality more than most, inviting young men to his hotel rooms after shows with seeming impunity. In 1944, he was invited to an interview with Lavrenti Beria, head of the NKVD, to ask why none of his songs were about Stalin. His answer was not satisfactory and he spent the next five years in a gulag in Magadan performing for inmates and officers alike. Agitation and Tentative Progress Queer life remained secretive and quiet until the 1980s, at which point a combination of factors, the relative laxity of the Communist Party, the first signs of a Soviet civil society, and pressure from a young international gay movement, brought a movement to life. Gay-specific publications, the most famous were called Tama, Argot and Risk, began to be printed and sold on the streets. Newly founded NGOs established connections with Scandinavia, Western Europe and America. Brave individual activists started building networks and increasing their activity, agitating for reform and legislation. One figure central to queer political revival this period was lesbian activist Masha Gensen now a famous anti-Putin writer and columnist for The New Yorker. This agitation had its limits. 
the movement was extremely young and small and often dependent on funding from more established American NGOs who paid little attention to local issues. The community had spent 60 years unable to discuss burning questions, which meant that the movement that emerged was fractious, with conservative elements constantly pushing back on demands they thought would alienate wider Soviet society. They faced considerable public backlash. In 1989, a survey by the Nevada Centre found that just over a third of Soviet citizens supported, quote, liquidating, end quote, homosexuals. In 1993, Boris Yeltsin decriminalised homosexuality in the Russian Federation. The 1990s saw a slow process of the Russian gay community building itself up, developing a culture somewhat analogous to Western European nations, the process by which Putin has vilified and attacked the country's modern queer community is a topic for another article. But for many of Russia's older queer people, the circumstances they now find themselves in is one that may feel a little familiar. They gather amongst themselves, build small communities of resistance, holding on to contact with the outside world and battling against an ever-increasing regime of repression and imprisonment. As socialists, as feminists, as internationalist gays the world over, our job is to remember the roots of queer oppression and the lives lived under it. We stand in the tradition of those, from Harry White onwards, who have stood strong in the face of that oppression. Further reading, Dan Healy's Homosexual Desire in Revolutionary Russia, 2001 and Russian Homophobia from Stalin to Sochi, 2017, are must-reads on LGBT Russian history. Other important research includes Rustam Alexander's Red Closet, The Hidden History of Oppression in the USSR, 2023, and Laurie Essig's Queer in Russia, 1999. Workers' Liberty has republished a translation of Harry White's letter to Stalin in full on our website with an explanatory introduction. bit.ly forward slash Harry White hyphen letter. Page 22. History. Larissa Reisner, A Bolshevik Revolutionary Life. Ellie Robinson. Larissa Reisner, A Biography by Kathy Porter, Brill, 2023. Larissa Reisner, 1895-1926, lived an extraordinary life. She fought for working-class socialism at its high point a century ago, but died just before Stalin snuffed out the workers' state she had fought to defend. Kathy Porter's newly updated Larissa Reisner, a biography, captures Reisner's passion and sheds new light on her life. Early life. Larissa Reisner was born on the 2nd of May, 1895, in Lublin, then in Tsarist Poland. Both her names are often misspelled with two S's. In 1898, her father, Mikhail Reisner, was exiled to Siberia for his political activities. And for the next five years, the family lived in the city of Tomsk. 
Between 1903 and 1907, they lived in exile in Berlin, where Larissa regarded leading German Social, Social Democrat Party SPD figures such as Julie Babel, Sophie Borisovna and Karl Liebknecht as aunts and uncles. In 1912, Larissa Reisner left school and entered St. Petersburg University, wrote poetry and threw herself into the city's bohemian nightlife. Her circle's motto was, quote, We are bohemians, restless, rootless, turbulent, forever seeking and not finding, creating new idols and abandoning them in the name of a new god, end quote. Russia and Revolution. In March 1917, Larissa Reisner joined the educational programme of the Petrograd Soviet, teaching literacy and literature in the workers' clubs. At Red Kronstadt, she met Fyodor Raskolnikov and gave literature classes on ships and in the sailors' clubs. There are several counts of Reisner's activities on the night the Bolsheviks took power in October 1917. In one account, she sailed to Petrograd with Raskolnikov and the sailors on the battleship Aurora, and it was she who gave the orders for the cannon blanks to be fired at the Winter Palace. Another claimed she joined the detachment of the Red Guards, who stormed the Peter and Paul Fortress. A friend reported that she presented herself for duty to the Bolshevik Central Committee, huddled in a small side room in the Smolny, when asked, quote, What can you do, comrade? End quote. Replied, quote, I can fight, ride, write reports from the front, and if necessary, die. End quote. In October 1917, she worked with the Bolshevik government first at the Commissariat of Education, then at the Commissariat of Naval Affairs. In spring 1918, she joined the Bolshevik Party and in May married Raskolnikov in a new state, quote, red wedding, end quote, ceremony. Russia Civil War. Reisner made her mark during the Russian Civil War. In late July 1918, she joined a detachment of sailors on the 200-mile train journey to form a new naval flotilla on the Volga River. In August-September 1918, Reisner participated in the first critical military turning point of the Civil War. Its fate was decided at Sveshka, where a few hundred Bolshevik volunteers defended the bridgehead over the Volga barring the Czech legion's access to the river route from Kazan to Nizhny Novgorod and the railway line to Moscow. She summed up the spirit of the fighting. Quote, Svayashk was a furnace in which the nucleus of the Red Army was forged at the height of the treat and panic the crossroads from which the tide of the revolutionary offensive began to roll in all directions. This Fyansk, where not one soldier fought under compulsion, where everything that was alive was fighting to defend the revolution, 
bound together by voluntary ties of discipline and a struggle that had seemed too hopeless at the outset. Those who slept on the station floor and straw littered with broken glass were afraid of nothing. No one asked when it would end. Tomorrow didn't exist. There was only a brief hot smoker today and we lived for it as we would live at harvest time. The days seemed so rich, so utterly unlike previous life. As soon as one passed, it seemed like a miracle and it was a miracle. Reisner wrote of Trotsky's miracles of leadership and organisation at Fayashk. Quote, refusing to yield an inch, inspiring fighters with his ruthless authority and icy calm, end quote, she wrote. But there is another force in revolutionary war, without which victory is impossible, and that is a romanticism of the revolution which inspires people to throw themselves straight from the barricades of 1917 into the harsh discipline of the army, without losing the light, step learnt from the street battles and political demonstrations, or the quick thinking gained from decades in the underground. It means swimming against the tide, beating back the exhaustion of four years of war and the stormy waters of the revolution. Ultimately, it's the revolutionary instinct that is the supreme judge. Trotsky possesses this instinct. The revolutionary in him is never pushed aside by the soldier, the leader, the commander. The day after the Battle of Svyansk, Trotsky ordered the soldier who had deserted to be arrested. 27 were shot, including eight Bolsheviks. Reisner argued that it was necessary in order to forge the, quote, iron spirit, end quote, of the Red Army. The night after the executions, she joined Trotsky and Raskolnikov on the destroyer Endurance at the head of the squadron of gunboats sailing with their lights out in battle formation to Kazan. Slipping through the narrow entrance to the harbour, they fired at a caravan of fuel barges which went up in flames. The whites fired back, grazing the endurance's bows and broke its rudder chain, causing it to ram one of its own gunboats. But engineers managed to repair the damage and the squadron returned without losses. In December 1918, Reisner was appointed as the Red Navy's first woman political commissar. She spent two years as cavalry instructor, flag secretary, war correspondent and reconnaissance officer fighting in the battles for Kazan and Tsaritsyn, Astrakhan and Azerbaijan, pushing herself to the limit, enduring danger, hunger and exhaustion. Afghanistan. Reisner's next assignment was in Afghanistan the key to Soviet Russia's complicated relations with British imperial power in Asia. Between 1921 and 1923, she was a member of the first Soviet diplomatic mission in Kabul, with Rasnolikov serving as ambassador. Reisner's relationship with Rasnolikov deteriorated during these years. Reisner told her friend Elizabeth Poretsky, that while in Afghanistan, Rizolnikov had abused, humiliated and beaten her. 
she told how he reported her to Moscow from conducting her intelligence work with the British, quote, naked at their quarters, covered only in a fur coat, end quote. And she had been reprimanded for, quote, behaviour unbecoming to a party member, end quote. Quote, she said he was insanely jealous and terribly violent, end quote. Paresky wrote, quote, and she showed me the vicious scar he had made on her back with his riding crop, end quote. Reisner suffered two mass carriages in Kabul. She left Afghanistan in May 1923 without Rasnolikov, three and a half months pregnant. In September, she was rushed to hospital in Moscow and had a third miscarriage. She divorced Rasnolikov. Germany. In autumn 1923, mass strikes seemed to be taking Germany close to revolution. Reisner was sent to live there illegally with false papers showing the underground lives of workers in Berlin and Hamburg. She reported on Hamburg's crushed communist-led uprising and the fight against Hitler's fascists. She worked for the Comintern secretary Karl Radek and began a romantic relationship with him. After the uprising was defeated in the second week of November, Radek sent her to Hamburg. At the end of November, she had left Hamburg and returned with Radek to Moscow. She worked on Hamburg's writings, studying trial records, corresponding with those still there, checking her material with them and with the exiled Hans Kippenberger. The first complete edition of Hamburg at the Barricades was published in December 1923 in German and a few weeks later in Russian. She also published a collection of articles titled Berlin, October 1923. This all took place in the midst of a passionate debate about the mistakes made in Germany and who was responsible. This debate formed part of the emerging conflict between the Stalinist bureaucracy and the left opposition led by Trotsky. Reisner returned to Germany as a journalist in 1923 travelling across the country, reporting on workers' lives under the new president, Field Marshal von Hindenburg. Russia. In January 1924, Lenin died. Reisner wrote an obituary. Tomorrow we must live. Today we grieve. Between May and October that year, Reisner spent five months travelling around the industrial heartlands of the Urals and eastern Ukraine, living with workers' families, joining them on their shifts in the mines and factories, reporting on their achievements, sacrifices and suffering in building the new Soviet economy. In December 1924, she published her book, Coal Iron and Living People, describing her travels. Weisner also reported for Pravda on the Conference of the Communist Women's International on its campaigns against fascism for women's reproductive rights and for women's reproductive rights. Censorship and myths. Weisner died on 9th of February 1926, three months before her 31st birthday. She received an official funeral by association with Trotsky and Rudek, meant she would soon disappear as the Stalinist strength of their grip on power.
In other cases, Reisner was denigrated in the memories of the Red Army commander Alexander Boyachikov, once a left oppositionist, broken in the gulag. She was depicted as a scheming sex maniac and demented stalker of Trotsky. All this nonsense is repeated as fact by fettered historian Robert Service in his 2009 biography of Trotsky. Assessment Better the verdict of fellow revolutionaries, Radek wrote. She hated everyday Philistinism. She wasn't interested in accumulating things or settling down. She didn't want to sink into dull routine. As an artist and a fighter for the revolution, she could always find in life's prose the lofty, the gripping, the substantive, the great. Trotsky too was effusive, calling her, quote, this palace, titan of the revolution, end quote. He wrote in my life, Larissa Reisner was herself prominent in the Fifth Army, as well as in the revolution as a whole. The fine young woman flashed across the revolutionary sky like a burning meteor, blinding many. With her appearance of an Olympian goddess, she combined a subtle and ironical mind and the courage of a warrior. She was anxious to know and to see all and to take part in everything. In a few brief years, she became a writer of the first rank. Porter's book is the best English language account of Reisner's life, though it is marred by a bizarre five-page rant, page 296 to page 301, about a US proxy war with Russia over Ukraine. Porter is planning to publish an English translation of Reisner's books next year, so activists can read her writings firsthand. We need more young socialists like Clarissa Reisner. Page 24. History. How Bermondsey's women joined the great unrest. Jill Mountford. Quote, wild factory girls, half drunk and yelling the lowest musical hall songs and dancing like wild creatures. End quote. So said the Bermondsey Parish magazine in 1900. Such sensuous accounts of young working class women's behaviour were widespread as women gained limited independence through factory work. In the workplace, they were seen as, quote, cheap and docile labour, end quote. And in the trade union movement, they were largely invisible. Will Thorne, a leading trade unionist at the time, declared that, quote, women do not make good trade unionists, end quote. And yet the young factory women of Bermondsey in the hot August of 1911 were anything but docile. The working conditions for the women in the factories were overcrowded and dangerous, matched by appallingly low pay and precarious contracts. Their health and safety were of little or no consequences to the bosses and their managers who considered injury to be part of the job. Serious cuts and the infections that followed plagued the women making tin containers. Cheap glass jars in the jam factories regularly exploded, maiming and even blinding the workers as they filled the jars with boiling hot jam. 
This was the Great Unrest, a period of high-class struggle in the years just before the First World War. The women of Bermondsey were not short of reasons to take action, and they did so. Around 15,000 low-paid women workers downed tools, walking out of the factories and onto the streets. Hundreds of thousands of workers were already striking nationwide, and the ruling class grew increasingly nervous. The government deployed troops and gunboats in Liverpool. Philip Gibbs, a journalist at the time, said the transport strike in Liverpool was, quote, as near to revolution as anything I've seen in England, end quote. The sweet smell of struggle. Bermondsey was a poor working class area dominated by low skilled work and low wages. Many men worked in the docks as casual labourers, some for private employers and others for the part for the Port of London Authority, PLA. Dockers working for the PLA often worked as many as 84 hours a week and for less than the, quote, dockers tanner, end quote, six pence per hour. In July 1911, growing discontent over wages and working hours resulted in more than 20,000 dockers and carmen in Burdensey walking out. The Bermondsey women strikers worked mainly but not solely in the food processing factories that had evolved around the docks in the late 19th century. The sweet aromas of custard, biscuits and jam filled the air, replacing the pungent odours from the tanneries. Rotting carcasses, softened with urine and dung, used in the leather-making process, had overpowered the atmosphere in this part of south-east London since the 1790s. No sooner had the dockers returned to work did the women in Pink's Jam Factory take to the streets in spontaneous in a spontaneous demonstration on Saturday the 12th of August. By Monday the 14th of August, a further 14,000 women and girls walked out of their workplaces, all calling for a pay rise. Unrestrained by union rules and bureaucracy, the women's strikes had an air of carnival and theatre about them. In his book, The Strange Death of Liberal England, 1935, George Dangerfield captured the spirit of the women, quote, as they went through the streets, shouting and singing, other women left their factories and workshops and came pouring out to join them. Many of them dressed in all their finery, defied the phenomenal temperature with feather boas and fur tippets, as though their strike was some holiday of the soul long overdue, end quote. The women adapted the words of a popular musical song, Fall In and Follow Me, as they paraded past factories urging other women to join them. The boss of Pink's Jam Factory claimed his workers had been, quote, well contented, end quote, until they were, quote, called out by the mob, end quote. In response, strikers at Pink's unfurled a banner saying, quote, not white slaves, but pink slaves, end quote. The term white slavery was commonly used, often as part of a moral panic at the time, to describe women and girls involved in sex work. Organising the movement. Mary MacArthur, the National Federation of Women's Workers, the NFWW, quickly threw herself into supporting the Bermondsey women. At a rally in Southwark Park on Monday the 14th of August, MacArthur and Ben Tillett of the National Federation of Transport Workers 
spoke to a crowd of over 10,000 strikers. Not long after, the army was instructed to set up camp in Southwark Park in the, quote, interests of public order, end quote. Class battle lines were laid out for all to see. MacArthur helped the strikers to formulate their demands. She got them raising funds and organising picket lines, rallies and marches. Within a week, they had raised £500 and six barrels of herrings. By the end of that same week, 4,000 women had joined the NFWW. By the end of the strikes, that number had swelled to 8,000. The solidarity and activism of the Independent Labour Party, the ILP, was essential. The party's offices on Fort Road became the street headquarters, the strike headquarters, as it did for all the local strikes between July and September 1911. Prominent ILP women, among them Ada Slater, Evelyn Lowe and Marion Phillips, distributed bread and groceries worth five shillings a week to strikers and their families. The Bermondsey women's strikes involved over 20 workplaces and thousands of ununionized women. They were all over by the 8th of September, with many of the bosses having conceded pay rises within a week. All but three workplaces won more money. Some factories won an extra two shillings a week, others a shilling. Peace workers won an increase of three pence per hour. Tinbox workers won a minimum wage of ten shillings a week. These young working class women had been dismissed and disrespected by their bosses and excluded from the organised labour movement. But the, quote, wild girls factory, end quote, of Bermondsey learned to take themselves and their collective power seriously. So should we. Page 26. Poetry. Nadia Drews. Describing herself as having been, quote, brought up by women with house bricks in their handbags, end quote. London-based poet Nadia Drews says that she, quote, has always known femininity with a hard edge when unclassed, end quote. Her poems, she says, are like the girls she grew up with, bleeding but bolshy. Nardi's poems have been published in various fanzines. She is a regular performer on picket lines and at fundraising gigs organised by Poetry on the Picket Line. Cassie Klusky. Cassie Klusky's come for tea. It's okay, because she asked her mum. Her mum says, get home for it's dark. That's when the bad lads with slavering dogs come. They'll bite you. Cassie Klusky's come for tea. I told her we'd have chips and egg. You nick a crispy one for me. Her mum says she's got hollow legs, full of pies. Cassie Klusky's come for tea. We'll wash our hands and use the soap. She eats the scabs right off her knees. She says she grows spuds between her toes. But I wouldn't eat them. Cassie Klusky's come for tea. She saves her afters round her face. She sometimes smells like hot corn beef. She picks her nose and has a taste. And then flicks it. Cassie Klusky's come for tea. We'll ice the cost with lemon curd. She'll squeeze it past her wobble teeth. She buzzes when she says some words, like toffees and sweeties, which she scoffs. Cassie Klusky's come for tea. Your smile is a sausage on a plate. You buy a fat one just for me. 
and sometimes you get belly ache and then you make a proper brew and mash it like you showed me to and that will make it better you'll see and Cassie Klusky's comforty. Page 26, Art. The liberating power of monstrosity. Liliana Pavia. While the horror film genre exploits the female body as a site of terror, women artists can weaponize the same theme as a powerful creative source. Here, Liliana Pavia examines finer objects through the lens of the horror film genre. Wanji Mutu myth-making. Wanji Mutu is a self-proclaimed, quote, irresponsible anthropologist and irrational scientist, end quote, and uses the canonically exploited black female body as her point of departure. She fragments and distorts with collage and mixed media, splicing cuttings from magazines with medical diagrams. Mutu's collages merge monstrous mythology with a female body tinged with violent eroticism in a manner reminiscent of the conflation of female sexuality with supernatural terror in the horror film Carrie, 1976 originally, a novel by Stephen King. The mythical, quote, curse, end quote, of womanhood pulses through both Mutu's art and Brian De Palma's film. Mutu's collage, Your Story, My Curse, 2006, presents a scene with three sexless figures against a bruised, mottled background. Mutu's cultural references and symbolic choices represent a dark and mythical femininity, both cursed and capable of cursing. Carrie's opening scene initiates the title character's pubescence and foreshadows her deadly supernatural powers. Her curse of blood arrives as she showers at school. Ignorant of menstruation, Carrie believes herself to be injured and screams in terror, whilst her peers pelt her with tampons, urging her to, quote, plug it up, end quote, and jeering her. The scene associates female sexuality with danger and mystical power, just as Mewtwo mythologizes her female figures as both sensual and malignant. Mewtwo's The Original Nine Daughters, 2012, includes figures with fantastical features such as claws, feathers, wings or antennae, wearing heels and stilts or with long fingernails or with pins in their bodies, a reference to the racism of anthropology towards black female bodies. Both Mewtwo and De Palma explore womanhood as fearful, grotesque and erotic. De Palma employs the mystification of nascent female sexuality to understand societal fear of female bodily functions. Mewtwo reveals a history of fear and fetishization of black female bodies while creating a mythology of powerful black women who envision a future of liberation. Mer Lee, Inside Out. In her kinetic sculptures, South Korean artist Mer Lee weds the wet horror of bodily function with pulsing desire. This combination is well represented in the horror film genre. Julia... Ducornay's film Raw 2016 and Ridley Scott's Alien 1979 both use the visual language of objection to conceive a powerful womanhood. In Raw 2016, vegetarian veterinary student Justine comes of age with an appetite for human flesh. As she enters womanhood, she transforms into a cannibalistic monster. 
both de Cornell and Lee stripped the body down to raw animal function, forcing the viewer to face a grotesque aspect of humanity they'd rather avoid. Lee's exhibition, I'm a Fountain of Filth, Raving Mad with Love, 2022, displays cement mixes, suspended sculptures and ceramic works, along with two filmmaking, quote, a show that gives you a feeling of going into the body of a huge animal, end quote. In Alien, the astronauts explore the, quote, gigantic, cavernous, malevolent womb of the mother alien, end quote. One astronaut, Kane, experiences a phallic oral rape from which the monstrous creature is attached. Lee strongly features motherhood in our exhibition. Its titles and the text written on the walls in concrete are taken from Korean poet Kim Yeon Hee, who has a set of poems on motherhood and frequently uses imagery of excre excrement and the body. Lee presents a film of her own mother sleeping, observing that, quote, people immediately become like meat when they fall asleep, end quote. The exhibition explores Lee's fascination with the fetishes of phorophilia and scatology, both related to the fusion of filth and desire and therefore pain with pleasure, the mode in which the horror genre operates. This also connects strongly to Raw 2016, in which Justine's appetite for flesh is figured as sexual desire. Tracy Emin, The Bad Victim Seeking Revenge Tracy Emin has met similar criticism to that levelled at rape revenge horror films such as Spit on Your Grave, 1978, which was dismissed as, quote, tasteless, irresponsible and disturbing, end quote, by critics. Emin's iconic tent, Everyone I've Ever Slept With, 1963-1995, was her, quote, way of getting back at then-boyfriend... Carl Friedman, end quote, motivated by self-defence. Emin regains her power from her literal and figurative rapists by exposing them in her work. Emin is the, quote, all-powerful, all-destructive, deadly femme castrice, end quote, like the heroines of rape revenge films such as Spit and Teeth 2007, who literally castrate their rapists. In Spit, Jennifer is subjected to a series of rapes and becomes a, quote, catatonic, silent, obsessive, end quote, who ritualistically executes her revenge, seducing and castrating each of her rapists. Critics Martin and Porter call this, quote, one of the most appalling moments in cinema history, end quote, implying that it is more disturbing than the rape. Similarly, Emin is characterised as almost more, quote, distasteful, end quote, for discussing a history of abuse than the abuse itself. In Teeth, 2007, Dawn discovers that she possesses a, quote, vagina dentata, end quote, after being assaulted. When Toby overpowers and begins to rape her, Dawn's vagina castrates him. Dawn discovers that when she is consenting, her vagina's teeth withdraw, so that she may have sex safely. Dawn weaponises her vagina to castrate first a schoolmate who has, has, who has sex with her for a bet and later her stepbrother as revenge for his negligence at her mother's death. In the final scene, the audience perceives that Dawn has now embraced her monstrosity.
Both Janitha and Dawn transformed from victim to deadly seductress. Emin was assaulted by her mother's lover at the age of 10 and at 11 by a stranger whom she met on Margate Beach. In her poem and video, Why I Never Became a Dancer, 1995, Emin narrates her attempt as a teenager to win a disco dancing competition in Margate, where she was humiliated and heckled by her audience of local boys, many of whom she slept with, while dancing and calling out her sexual abusers' names. The video represents her liberation from humiliation and shame. The such shaming she once endured is transformed into a work of art in which Emin has the power of success and celebrity. Emin's ambiguous account of abuse makes her, like Dawn and Jennifer, the imperfect rape victim because of claims that somehow they, quote, liked it really, end quote, they are failed by the justice system and must avenge themselves. Louise Borges' Mother Alien Louise Borges' portrayal of the, quote, shadowy figure, end quote, of the archaic mother resonates with the fearsome mothers of horror, particularly Mother Alien. Emin collaborated with Borges on a series of drawings, Do Not Abandon Me, 2009-2010, exploring the maternal body. Emin and Borges' symbolism of the woman as a void connects directly to the archaic mother figure that Ridley Scott represents in Alien. The representation of the womb as an abyss is also akin to the isolated and terrifying space of Scott's iconic tagline, quote, in space, no one can hear you scream, end quote. The spiral motif appears repeatedly in Borges' art, notably in the suite of oil-based woodcut prints entitled Spirals, 2005, and in her twisting bronze sculpture, Labyrinthine Tower, 1962. For Borges, the spiral describes an infinite maternal cycle of birth, death and rebirth. In Spider, 1997, Borges unites several of her concerns and motifs. The spider's sculpted body and legs sprout threateningly around and over the cell. The spider's body is significantly impregnated with glass eggs. The largest of Borges' arachnid sculptures is Maman, 2000, the iteration of Borges' mother as inescapable malevolent. The still installation towers over the viewer, terrifying in her disproportionate size and with visible mesh egg sac. Maman and the threatening mothers of Alien have reproductive functions inescapably linked to their destructive, fearsome capabilities. The power of maternal for both Borges and Scott is not simply threatening, but ultimately protective. Female monstrosity. The parallels between cinema and the works of these artists reveal the construction of female monstrosity by the patriarchal systems of order. The male gaze towards works of art, the audience's exploitative voyeurism and the camera's phallic invasion of the female body are all complicit in this. Each artist represents a different face of the fearful and vilified woman. The racially stereotyped and hypersexualized black woman depicted by Mutu. The abject interior and tabooed sex of the female body by Merle. The promiscuous victim of rape by Emin. The neurotic, phallic motherhood by Bourgeois. These artists' comprehension of the deep-rooted feel of their subjects enables their liberation. 
They describe what is perceived as inherently grotesque or unacceptable about womanhood without shame or censorship, and this is where both their criticism and success lie. These artists embrace their perceived monstrosity and in doing so envision a new future for themselves, free from the limitations and expectations of the patriarchy to express the nuance of their womanhood in full force and power. Page 29. Unachievable Average. Being a woman of colour around the world. Loretta Marie Pereira. Quote, being the most interesting person in the room, end quote. The Instagram ad, designed to inspire and excite, was surely wasted on me. From being a minority in my native Singapore, to a brown woman in Beijing, to bringing a rare dose of melanin to Moscow, and then falling directly into the ranks of, quote, suspicious category, end quote, in Montenegro, and finally to Luxembourg, where being a person of South Asian descent is hardly unusual. My journey has taken me many places where I was, for better or worse, the most interesting in the room by default, or at least the one who drew the most attention upon entering. After a long journey spanning decades, I love and embrace how I look and the colour of my skin. But on many occasions, I've longed for what many are used to or taken for granted, normal, uninteresting, average. What a quiet pleasure and privilege it must be to be unremarkable in how you look and to stand out only for your interests, your ideas, your passions, yourself. Singapore. Outspoken, messy, ambitious, and perhaps worst of all, the brownest I could be under the hot Singapore sun. Growing up in a Chinese-majority Singapore meant for a long time that my social life was limited to being the single girl of the group. Quote, I love hanging out with you, end quote, a close male friend once told me. Quote, I just can't imagine dating a girl like you, end quote, he elaborated. Funny you should say that, I mused to myself. I hadn't asked, but he had unwittingly summed up what my teen years would be like. I like you, just not like that. I started to travel and found out rather quickly that what was undesirable in my own country was, quote, exotic, end quote, in others. An unfortunate label that brought with it its own set of problems. It took the better part of a decade to understand my self-worth and through my strengthening feminism, see myself through my own eyes instead of those of the uninterested men around me. Beijing. The brown girl in a Chinese majority setting continued in Beijing, where I moved at 25 with one major difference. Here I wasn't local, but categorised with all other foreigners, regardless of whether you're black, white or brown. There were many others from Singapore who lived and worked in China. They just didn't, they just, they just didn't tend to look like me. Behind this expat bubble, my placelessness continued. Quote, are you sure you're from Singapore? End quote. A question I still get asked often. As we all know, one doesn't often forget where one is from and needs help to get to the bottom of it. Quote, sure you're not from India, Pakistan, Colombia, the Seychelles, end quote. A stranger would, and this happens more often than you might think, helpfully offer in the quest to find and answer what makes sense to them. Quote, sure, why not? End quote, I say. He seemed confused but victorious at my willingness to concede. They say, you should choose your battles and convincing strangers of something they've already decided against. I quickly realised, need it be one of them. Moscow. 
No one in Moscow knew quite what to make of me, but in a big city that, unlike other parts of Russia, was, at the time, desperately trying to become more international, the suspicious or curious stares were as frequent as the pickup lines. Even when I was with my partner, a straight white man of six foot one, men would approach, start conversations. In one instance, I was serenaded in a supermarket. In another, a man grabbed my arm and pulled me towards him. It was assumed we weren't together. He was white, I was brown. And in Russia, interracial couples were incredibly rare. Quote, sorry, end quote, they say once they realised. To my partner, of course, never to me. Montenegro. Never have I been so equally loathed as I was propositioned in the Balkan country of Montenegro. It was not uncommon for me to hear spiteful words I couldn't understand muttered as I walked past strangers in the street. On the other hand, I was just as frequently sexually propositioned by men in cafes, driving past in cars, approaching me in trains or on the streets. I asked a local friend who had an immediate answer. Quote, they think you're Romani, end quote, she said, indicating the colour of my skin. In this country, she went on, Romani women are seen as beggars or sex workers. Here, I quickly understood that it didn't matter that I was dressed for the office, heading for the bus, headed for the bus, bright and early, with headphones on and very much minding my own business. Quote, sex, end quote, a man yelled one morning as he pulled over in his car, gesturing to the back seat. Had I been in a freshly pressed power suit, holding an old-school briefcase, while walking with purpose in sensible court shoes, none of it would have mattered. They would see my colour. What they decided it meant, and what that told them, was all they needed to know. Many still looked at me as if I was looking for trouble, or about to ask for money. They despised the fact that I was there, and soon enough, so did I. Luxembourg. I didn't know very much about Luxembourg before I moved here. But what I've learnt so far is promising. It is in fact where the EU first formed, home to Schengen itself, and far more diverse than I thought it would be. It isn't that racism and discrimination doesn't exist. One report went so far as to declare Luxembourg the EU country with the highest levels of discrimination based on job opportunities and the ability to rent an apartment. But after a long time of being the only one in the room who wasn't white, I have to admit it was with absolute delight that a few weeks ago I looked around a crowded bus and realised that the minorities were in fact, at least in this bus, the only ones there. I didn't feel special at all. It was absolutely wonderful. Sri Lanka. For a brief and glorious time when I travelled in Sri Lanka, the native homeland of my father's side, I finally caught a glimpse of normalcy. My last name, Pereira, is the most common name in the country. You only need to watch the cricket team play to see that, quote, Pereira, end quote, is in Colombia what, quote, Smith, end quote, is in London. Common, unremarkable, and most importantly, no one would ever ask you how to spell it. It was towards the local cricket team that I found myself drawn one morning as I wandered about the capital. Colombo strikers were training and I wanted a closer look. Quote, no entry beyond this point, end quote, a sign warned. Quote, well, that's hardly applies to me, end quote, I smirked. Quote, what's the worst that could happen, end quote, and off into the grounds I went. 
On reflection, I wonder if this is the entitlement so many walk the world with. The idea that I probably shouldn't, but hey, the consequences, if any, can only be so bad. In my case, it was a guard gesturing at the sign and waving me off. With a shrug, I backed away cheekily, apologising with my hands up, and just for a while, I understood what it was to have a privilege simply being the default. Finding my place. With everything that I've learned and observed over the years, much has changed, but perhaps most of all myself. Sure, I'm still the same brown woman, finding a place in a world that isn't always welcoming. Except far from the frustration of my younger self, I've now found the inner strength and confidence to not give a damn whether I'm welcome or not. Privileged in itself, and not one that all may have. And when it comes to those who still make assumptions because of the colour of my skin, it really is their loss. As much as I've grown to love the melanin I was born with, it's hardly the most interesting thing about me. Page 31. If Barbie's answers ring, is it really Barbie land? Ruth Cashman. Barbie, director, Greta Gerwig, 2023. Beware, spoilers. I went to see Barbie wearing pink. My friends were wearing pink. When we arrived at Peckham Plex in South London, almost everyone else was wearing pink. People walking past the cinema to do something else were wearing pink. Not since the queue has London given itself over to such an all-consuming cultural event. Variety reports that the marketing budget allocated to Barbie was a staggering $150 million, $5 million more than the film's production costs. Indeed, much of the film's success can be put down to the fact that before it hit screens, it was everywhere. The, quote, this Barbie, end quote, meme template was begging to be quote subverted end quote and soon enough quote this barbie is trans end quote quote this barbie is on strike end quote quote this barbie is going to throw flow capitalism end quote spread through social media this was enormous free advertising for the film but also created a cultural frenzy that was genuinely fun to be part of for many girls, it was nice to see the world go wild for something girly. Though girls and teenage girls in particular are important consumers of the entertainment industry, the pop culture they consume faces phenomenal vitriol and backlash. There are bad movies and cringy songs for all demographics, but they don't all face equivalent scorn to say Twilight. Society views teenage girls as superficial and stupid, so their superficial and stupid likes get put in the spotlight, while we all quietly ignore Liam Neeson's latest shoot-up-bad-guys enterprise. Barbie gave women and girls a film that was unashamedly theirs in a culture war, war where misogyny rules. At its core, the film was a scattergun liberal feminist answer to the events that have unfolded since the 2016 election of Donald Trump. The all-women Supreme Court in Barbie land, Midge, doll who is always pregnant, and Barbie's trip to the gynaecologist all serve as reminders of the only food turning of Roe versus Wade. The queer representation in the film is fantastic in terms of casting. The L's, G's, B's and T's all get their place. Sadly, it is far less apparent in the narrative. We have double entendre and queer coding, but big talent is wasted. We don't get the gentle, less queer romance 
every Barbie fan experimented with as a child and which the film was screaming out for. If Barbies aren't scissoring, then is it really Barbie land? You fascist. Though Barbie, played by Margot Robbie, is the star of the film, Gloria portrayed by American Ferrara is our real protagonist. She is a dreamer of Barbie land and the one bringing thoughts of death and cellulite to its shores. As her daughter grew up and away from her and stopped playing with her dolls, Gloria clung on. But her sad, nostalgic playing is filling Barbie land with all her worries and existential dread. Gloria represents normal womanhood. She saves Barbie land with an impassioned speech about the impossible expectations placed on women. Quote, This is literally impossible to be a woman. We have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. It's too hard, it's too contradictory, and nobody gives you a medal, so thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself up in knots so that people will like us. End quote. She begins a feminist revolution by consciousness raising, listing the endless contradictory expectations that women have to grapple with, and in doing so, deprograms the Barbies who have been brainwashed into servitude by the Kens. Gloria's daughter, Sasha Ariana Greenblatt, is a teenager who doesn't want to play with Barbies anymore. She thinks she's outgrown them, and more to the point, thinks they represent much that is wrong in a world she wants to change. On meeting Barbie, she doesn't want anything to do with her, yelling, quote, You've been making women feel bad about themselves since you were invented, end quote. She adds, quote, You set the feminist movement back 50 years, you fascist, end quote. Sadly, that is the last we hear of our defiant Zuma. Before you know it, she's helping save Barbie Land with the next to no narrative to explain why we have an unappreciated mother juggling too much who wishes her child to stay her little girl. We have a daughter who is developing her own identity, rejects the sexist toys of her childhood and is a bit rude. How is this resolved? The rebellious teenager comes to not just support her mother but to accept that she was wrong to judge Barbie. Their relationship is saved by an about turn on the part of the child's entire worldview and little growth on the part of the mother bar an increase in confidence. Be nice to your mother and accept your differing political views are a character flaw you should quietly iron out. Even if you're most run-of-the-mill teen movies, these parent-teen conflicts are usually resolved by both parties learning something of the view of the other, not here. And then we have the awful line from the Barbie creator, quote, We mothers stand still so our daughters can look back to see how far they have come, end quote. Just yuck. Meta Barbie. What is going on here? Of course we know the commercial purpose of the Barbie movie was to sell Barbies, but unlike Toy Story, this film isn't selling toys to kids. It is selling toys to millennial mothers. The message of the film is that buying your daughter's Barbies is not only fine, it might even be feminist. The meta-analysis comes thick and fast throughout the film. There are jokes about Barbie's creator's tax fraud. Parent company Mattel are portrayed as part evil, part bumbling fools, borrowing heavily from the Lego movie's Mr Business. Meta Barbie allows the audience to relax. Don't worry, you may have just paid to watch a well-produced advert, but we're all in on the joke. We laugh at the all-male Mattel board, 
but Mattel doesn't actually have an all-male board. In all the visual jokes about the physicality of Barbie Land, we never saw reference to the famous study showing that a scaled-up Barbie would be forced to walk on all fours and be physically incapable of lifting her head. The purpose of the knowing jokes about the brand is, ironically and yet unsurprisingly, to save the brand. Alongside this kid's glove piss-taking, the film makes a very earnest defence of Barbie. Quote, Since the beginning of time, since the first little girl ever existed, there have been dolls. But the dolls were always and forever baby dolls, until... End quote. The Barbie movie tells us that Barbie is a good role model, actually because she shows little girls that they can have jobs, become astronauts and supreme justices, and live in dream houses without men. This contradictory tone is at the heart of the film, a mishmash of messages and narrative. Don't try to understand it too deeply, or it all begins to fall apart. The most generous reading is that Barbie Land is incoherent because it represents the chaotic imagination of children's play. It's not supposed to make sense. It is cinematic surrealism moulded in pink, more likely, the incoherence stems from the film being a battleground with different forces. Mattel and Greta Gerwig at least trying to make different films. Art for art's sake. It's useful for us to interrogate the ideology of mass media. Film represents and reproduces myths about society and it's valuable to consider how and why particular views are shown. That it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all of film for socialists. However, I have serious criticisms of the portrayal of women and feminism Barbie, in Barbie, but I also loved it. When I criticise the film, its politics or even the viral media hype surrounding it, I don't do it from a position of sneery judgement. I love the film and I love the mass excitement around it. We do not need to put our communist stamp of approval on art. We do not need to watch films that reflect our politics back at us or tell us how to transform society. Art which shows us the complexity of human personality, its passions and feelings, and that which makes us human is in itself more gratifying than preachy lessons written as films. Films that are very funny or very beautiful or scary have value in themselves. Feminist and socialist theory needs us to read books, go to meetings and talk to each other. It won't be served up at the Peckinplex. Real wins require real life struggles. People will be genuinely moved by moments in Barbie. I know many people who cried as Barbie sat on the bus stop, first witnessing small moments of humanity. My friend and I grappled. My friends and I grabbed each other, giggling uncontrollably when the Kens were playing Matchbox 20 on the guitar at the Barbies. I was mesmerised by the authentically unreal sets in Barbie Land and the Jacques Demi-style colour palette. I thought every single visual gag about the plastic world was fantastically well done. If I thought Women's Fight Back would print it, I'd write a review of those alone. Barbie sliding over the plastic pool was magnificent. The Ken dance-off was also funny and catchy. Whatever its politics, for all these reasons and more, it was a wonderful film. Page 33. Reports. 25,000 March for Trans Pride. Wilson Gibbons. 
Workers' liberty activists joined tens of thousands of protesters marching in support of trans rights at this year's London Pride, London Trans Pride on 8th of July. The protest was an emphatic rejection of the Tories' transphobic culture war and a vibrant show of solidarity with the UK trans community. At its peak, the demonstration was so large that organisers reportedly altered the route to accommodate the brightly dressed, politically charged crowds which filled the streets as they marched from Trafalgar Square to Hyde Park Corner. Placard highlights included, quote, no borders, no binaries, no Tories, and in reference to difficulties getting gender-affirming care, quote, no more deaths, no more wait lists, end quote, chance of, quote, fuck the pigs, protect trans kids, end quote, were heard throughout. Others mourned the loss of trans loved ones and Brianna Gay, Brianna Guy, who was murdered in Warrington in February this year. The fight in the unions, the case of the PCS. The small scale of the trade union bloc, however, highlighted the need to bring the fight for trans rights into our unions and to develop the labour movement's politics on this issue. The PCS leadership, for example, has on several occasions taken reactionary positions on trans rights. In 2017 and 2018, the NEC opposed motions calling for self-identification for trans people. In 2019, Mark Swatka, the union's general secretary, unilaterally signed a letter with so-called quote, gender-critical, end quote, feminists and other vehemently anti-trans individuals claiming proper debate was being prevented by violent trans activists. Sawatka and the NEC were later censored by a motion passed overwhelmingly by the membership which argued that his actions brought the union into disrepute and contravened democratically decided policy. Even in this debate, the leadership dragged its heels using coded arguments about, quote, legitimate concerns, end quote, among cisgender women. The work by rank-and-file members in the PCS to hold its leadership to account and consistently pass policy defending trans people is a model that trade unionists and other unions can look to. It was perhaps unsurprising in the context of this ongoing battle within the union to see a crowd of PCS flags at the heart of the trade union block at Trans Pride. Free Sarah Baker. Trans activist Sarah Jane Baker is currently a political prisoner. During a speech at London Trans Pride, she said, quote, If you see a turf, punch them in the fucking face. End quote. Sarah later publicly apologised for her statement. Her comments were unhelpful designed to be edgy and outrageous, but she never intended to inspire actual violence. Sarah was on probation for crimes she committed over 30 years ago. The initial response from the police and the probation service was to take no further action. It was only after Home Secretary Suella Bravman intervened personally that she was recalled to an all-male prison. Her arrest is clearly politically motivated, part of the culture war we were protesting against at Trans Pride leading politicians are able to influence a police like this, then the wider implications for protests and free speech are obvious. Join the campaign against this injustice. Messages of support can be sent to free Sarah Jane Baker at proton.me at free Sarah Jane Baker crowdfunder bit.ly forward slash sjb hyphen crowdfunder 
Sheffield's first radical pride. Page 34. Sheffield's first radical pride. Alex Hill. On 22nd of July, over 300 people descended on Barker's Pool in Sheffield for the city's first ever radical pride. The organisers, Sheffield Radical Pride, are a group of grassroots activists from across the city. Their mission is to reclaim pride and to make an anti-capitalist protest again without the presence of corporate pinkwashing or the police. The march set off, headed by blocks made up of QTIPOC, queer, trans, intersex, black and people of colour, sex workers, migrants and refugees, as well as a bicycle block whose role was to block off streets and stop cars whilst the march progressed. Attendees filtered in the behind the blocks with their own placards, banners and flags chanting as they went. The march reached the mall where it stopped to hear speeches from the blocks before setting off again towards its end point, Endcliffe Park. Here, a, quote, queer takeover, end quote, had been organised, consisting of music, stalls and food. There was also information about obtaining HRT without the help of the NHS, gender-conforming makeup, and a clothing swap on offer. The event was a great success, bringing together queer activists from across the city and further afield. The event really stood as a reminder for what Pride should be and can be, free from corporate influence and heavy police presence that we see at other cities' prides, such as Leeds and London. For me, Sheffield Radical Pride has fostered a new feeling towards Pride parades, one that I had not experienced before. The atmosphere was electric and everyone was excited to take part and make history in Sheffield. This was the first Pride Sheffield This was the first Pride Sheffield has seen since twenty nineteen, and it was very telling how much people needed it to happen. The crowd was very young, and unlike other marches I have attended in the past, the number of queer people versus straight people who attend Pride events for spectacle and partying was flipped on its head. The march was made for the queer community in Sheffield. The event was a major win for Sheffield Radical Pride. I look forward to seeing what they can pull off next year. Join a reading group. We run socialist feminist reading groups in both South London and Sheffield. Each month we discuss a book, either a new release or a classic form from the movement. Brixton, South London, Ephra Social, SW21DF. Abolition Revolution by Avia Sarah by Avia Sarah Day and Shanice Octavia McBean. Sunday the 1st of October, 2pm. No meeting in November. Straight Sex, Rethinking the Politics of Pleasure by Lynn Seagal. Sunday the 3rd of December, 2pm. For a copy of the books or more details, email office at workersliberty.org. Sheffield, Showroom Cafe, S1, 2BX. Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Molly Smith and Juno Mack. Monday the 2nd of October, 5.30pm. Cannibal Capitalism by Nancy Fraser. Monday the 6th of November, 5pm. Abolition Revolution by Avia Sarah Day and Shani Octavia McBean. Monday the 4th of December, 5pm. For a copy of the books or more details, Shefford, email shefford at workersliberty.org. The new quote, section 28. Jenny Wren. 
The government is due to release guidance for schools around trans pupils, but it's been repeatedly delayed due to concerns it will not comply with the 2010 Equalities Act. What was initially meant to be advice for single-sex schools regarding the legality of refusing to admit trans pupils now looks to be much wider-ranging and incredibly alarming for trans youth and school staff. The guidance is likely to compel schools to inform parents if a child discloses that they are trans or questioning their gender, to establish a need for parental consent for a child to socially transition or switch pronouns in school, and to forbid staff from respecting students' preferred pronouns if their parents disagree with the transition. Even where parents are supportive, there'll be no exception. There'll be no expectation that staff or students will respect a trans student's preferred names or pronouns. They can refuse on the grounds that to do so would go against their own beliefs, or if they believe that it would make other students uncomfortable. It may also recommend that trans students are excluded from competitive sports. It is reminiscent of Section 28, the section of the 1988, 1988 Local Government Act that banned local authorities and schools from, quote, promoting homosexuality, end quote. Teachers weren't allowed to teach about same-sex relationships and anyone who broke the law could face disciplinary action. The impact was devastating for generations of LGBT pupils and school workers that lived through Section 28 until its repeal in 2003. But it also has a lasting legacy. Homophobic bullying is still widespread in schools today. As a school worker, this new guidance fills me with dread. We have a number of trans students and I've always felt proud of how supportive our setting has been for them. It's been a safe space for young people to discuss their gender identity and, quote, try out, end quote, names and pronouns before coming out. I've witnessed the wide range of responses these students get when they come out at home. Some parents take their trans kid to pride. Some take a little while to get used to their new pronouns. Others refuse to accept their gender identity, persistently deadnaming their child. Some parents physically assault their children for daring to tell the truth about how they feel and who they are. Even when young people have supportive parents at home, choosing how and when to come out to their parents is a deeply personal decision. Another major concern is how this guidance would give protection to transphobic bullies, be they staff or students. In no other area of life would it be acceptable to repeatedly misgender or deadname someone. In my school, any such behaviour would quickly be addressed and stamped out. Under this uh, guidance, I can sadly envision a scenario where trans students are subjected to a regular humiliation of having to answer to their dead name multiple times a day in order to protect a transphobic teacher's supposed, quote, right, end quote, to say, quote, Jane, end quote, instead of, quote, John, end quote. Schools do desperately need some sensible guidance around trans issues and how to best support trans students with things like safely accessing toilets, changing facilities and residential trips, for instance. But this guidance treats trans people like they are somehow more dangerous and more of a safeguarding risk than any other student. Rather than setting out to protect students, it is seeking to protect transphobes. We must challenge this guidance at every turn. Trade unions in the 1980s were at the forefront of the campaign to repeal Section 28. Likewise, 
Today's union movement needs to have a strong response, building a campaign of non-compliance if the guidance should come into force. Women's Fight Back is a socialist feminist publication produced by Workers' Liberty. If you would like to organise with us or contribute to Women's Fight Back, please write to us. Women's Fight Back at workersliberty.org Instagram, women's.fightback. Thank you.